Wish I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars, scats. I wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian in late night sitcoms syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish the help is like, it's like, I wish, I wish, that every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we love and it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels I wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better rhyming scheme. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from my lime bean. I wish that I could spread my wings. I wish that I had seven limbs. That way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dímelo, dímelo. At least I kind of understand it. <laughs> wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. Yeah. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more classic rock. <laughs> Focused on myself. You can't help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish. Welcome to another episode of The Debrief. I'm your host, Brianna Joy Gray, and we are here after a pretty exciting episode, I think, in which I had an extra long, super duper, three hour, no, sorry, that's a lie, uh, almost two hour conversation with Glenn Greenwald, who of course needs no introduction. He is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. He is uh, a free speech advocate, formerly uh, worked at the ACLU. He has broke, broken some of the biggest news stories of our generation. And he has also become a little bit of a bete noir of the mainstream media for certain iconoclastic takes, uh, certainly not predictable in the least, and in many ways has been on the forefront, I think, of what has become over time progressive orthodoxy. Of course, at this moment, there are many people, I'm sure, some of whom are on this call, who disagree with many of the positions that he's taken. And we are obviously here to talk about all of it. I thought it was a really illuminating interview in many respects, including getting some, I think, really substantive um, critique of the Twitter files, which has been difficult because there has been so much bad faith critique that it was really, um, I think, compelling to hear Glenn voice some of the concerns that a lot of other people have had about, you know, you know, what it means for Elon Musk to basically be in control of the tap of what files and resources um, are getting out there to a number of journalists. And I think so much of the criticism has been that someone in the media doesn't like this journalist or that journalist. The critique of what it means for Elon Musk to basically be controlling what everyone is privy to has, I think, been missed. And it's not in any skepticism about any one person per se, but unlike in some of the other examples that Glenn pointed out where there are leakers or hackers or whistleblowers or, and the like who turn over what they find or, you know, something that is very clearly in line with a certain agenda, let's say, to expose bad actions of the U.S. government. Here, it's someone who is 
in a CEO position kind of selectively letting the public know what they want to know about their own organization and what it has and hasn't done with a pretty clear motive that isn't kind of antithetical to the establishment. It's the person who owns the org who's the one controlling the tap. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting question. Is the, is, are the files, do the files, the leaks so far contain relevant information? I think that's absolutely yes. Lee Fong got another dump today or, you know, published on another round of documents today. I haven't had as much time to look very closely at that. But again, I think that his reporting on these files has been particularly illuminating and valuable to the public interest. But the question remains, what don't we know? What does it mean in terms of the mainstream media's willingness to report on it if no mainstream media figures are given access to the documents? Is that trade-off worth it? Is it Would it benefit the reporting and the value of the trove of documents if there were a broader audience? And was it worth buying mainstream buy-in by including some more mainstream uh, reporters in it? Are there reporters that aren't more mainstream reporters but are more left-oriented reporters, people like Glenn or, let's say, Chris Hedges? who might also expand the public interest and in what's going on at these organizations. And are we getting a skewed image of this as kind of like a left-right issue as opposed to an insider-outsider establishment, non-establishment issue, um, precisely because uh, of the kind of the, the way that the documents in the release has, has been curated? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it truly is the case that, there's not a lot of evidence of attacks on the left, et cetera. That could completely be the case. But I think that skepticism remains as long as the document archive remains uh, accessible only to a relatively limited number of people and people who are disproportionately not on the left. Of course, there are some leftists, but disproportionately, I would say, not on the left. Although to Glenn's point, not, not exactly like Turning Point USA-style conservatives either. So I'm really interested to hear what all y'all have to say. So let's get right to it. Uh, Carolina boy, what's on your mind? Hello, Carolina boy. Are you with us? Can you unmute yourself? Carolina boy, can you unmute yourself? All right. I'm going to move on to Bide. What's in your, what's on your mind tonight, Bide? Hey, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Hello. Okay, good. Oh, um, awesome. <laughs> yeah. I can hear you. What's on your mind? Um, Long time no chat. How have you been? Yeah, I've been good. I've been really good. Uh, got a lot of different changes going on, uh, potentially. Uh, New profile pic, I see. Yeah, you know, trying to uh, uh, keep it fresh, keep people guessing. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I really liked this episode with, with Glenn. Um he he's one of those people that if you only interacted with him on Twitter or only saw how he interacts with people on Twitter, you might buy into the idea that he's a complete sort of uh, turncoat. He's taken every left position that he's ever had and thrown it in the dumpster and gone all in on the right wing uh, sort of grift machine and the reformed left or whatever. Um but every time you have him on the show or every time you he's talking to someone uh, for a, a long amount of time, you kind of see how uh, 
how sort of ridiculous that narrative is. Even if there are real critiques to be had, I mean, the fact that he will answer to them and, you know, some of the answers that he was given on today's show made complete sense to me. Um, Mm -hmm. And it is hard, especially when you start talking about the sort of strategic decisions of when you don't call out certain people like Tucker Carlson uh, in order to maintain some aspect of um, access to Mm -hmm. his program and therefore his audience so that you could still get that message out there. And I liked how you also spoke to him about how that's sort of been your experience on the Hill. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's probably, I don't know, there's probably some kind of like discussion to be had about where that line is between uh, sort of appeasement and uh, being calculated with your uh, critiques of certain people uh, Mm -hmm. in order to be able to radicalize their audience. Um, But, you know, I don't, I'm not sure where that line is either, but. um, If you had to make the Bide rule that we all that all of the left media folks followed and you had to come up with it in the next 10 seconds. <laughs> okay. What the do you Bible. think? I mean, do you have any sense? I mean, have, do you have a sense of like moments where you think people have crossed the line should have made us, you know, taken a stand on something felt like a community was getting thrown under the bus unnecessarily, or maybe complained too much in a moment that lost some credibility where, where they weren't really convincing anybody of everything. And it felt more like grandstanding. I mean, you must have some sense of where the line is, even if it's a big, thick line a mile wide. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I had to do the Bide rule, I would say um, if I have to change really the substance of my answer or uh, if I'm unwilling to go to the people who – my answer is affecting materially and give them the same answer Mm -hmm. to their face, then I'm probably violating the rule. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think about that a lot when it comes to discussions about, uh, you know, like trans rights Mm -hmm. in particular, Uh, just because there are a lot of these discussions where, uh, I don't know, people, people are either so remote from the issue and it doesn't really actually affect them or they've mm-hmm. bought into some of the, you know, they drank in some of the Kool-Aid that is the current culture war and are perceiving trans rights through the lens of uh, people who never cared about trans rights to begin with. Uh, yeah. I do feel I, like with trans I, issues I in particular, it feels like so much of the, so much of the discourse is just so completely bad faith for a lack of a better word. That it, it, it's yeah. it's one of the issues that I feel most strongly like I'd almost rather never discuss it unless someone's in the room, a trans person's in the room. But then, you know, it, you know, it, it's been made such a culture war battleground that it's always, it seems like coming up. And then it feels like a weird dodge to say, like, I don't want to say anything about it. I don't know. It, it is like, I think right. Glenn and I both articulated that's one of the trickier ones. But I was on, I was on Rising last week and this, this issue came up because uh, Liz Wolf, who's a, who sometimes is a guest host, was a was a interview guest, was a segment guest, and I don't even remember what the to- oh the topic was the FBI, um, sorry, not the FBI, the the IRS defunding, 
and she's a libertarian and is pro defunding. And I had just done a radar and I was making the case, well, look, I think people's concerns about lower income people being disproportionately targeted by the IRS are legitimate. But if you just take away funding and take away the IRS's ability to audit richer people, you're basically not solving the problem of poor people getting targeted and you're just letting rich people off the hook. So what's the plan? And she says, well, yes, I agree, you know, gestures toward populism, that it's a problem that rich people get off the hook. And she says something like, oh, I'm so glad you said that, Brianna, because it disgusts me that people like Bernie Sanders, millionaires, can get away with X, Y, and Z. And I was like, oh, get are the you serious? Fuck out of here. So get here, here now, I'm in, now I'm in this position, right, where I'm trying to make an argument to a disproportionately conservative audience, validate their concerns about what the IRA, you know, any powerful organization that has the power to prosecute poor and working class people, as they have been doing, I'm, I want to validate that concern, right? It's a legitimate concern. I also want to raise this other concern that maybe the people who are talking about defunding the IRS don't actually care about poor people. They just want to use them as an excuse to get rich people to not have to pay their taxes. Okay. Right. Now, I want to land this point without completely derailing into a conversation where I'm defending Bernie Sanders having $2 million from his book sales. Right? Like, I don't want to now seem like I'm simping for Bernie Sanders' ability to have $2 million. But it's such a ridiculous jab. Do I let right. it go? Right. Well, I, I mean, that's one of the problems with arguing with people who don't care about good faith, bad faith, is they can do all of these jabs knowing full well how ridiculous of a statement it is. How, how um, or with the explicit intention to derail that conversation, right? And to force you into a position to where you're defending someone who made $2 million off of book sales, which, yeah, that's a lot of money. But as far as we're talking about, like, exploitative, exploitative uh, methods of labor, uh, making anything creatively and then people voluntarily spending money to buy the creative thing that you made is one of the least exploitative ways that you can make money, period, like generally. But then we have to get into an entire discussion about that and then you know, you have to get into the discussion between the difference between millionaires and billionaires and Mm -hmm. how the people who benefit the most from the IRS not existing, or especially when there's just been funding that's been given to increase the number of IRS agents Mm -hmm. so that they have the resources to go after some of these billionaires who are so big that oftentimes the IRS can't even go after them because they can't uh, sustain themselves monetarily mm-hmm. to continue those investigations and to, to mm-hmm. continue those audits um, while the billionaires can just buy armies full of lawyers and accountants to uh, play, you know, hide the ball. Um, but I don't know. Like it's, it's, it, I it's think tough. you do a good job of it. I think you do a very good job of it. And I think it's hard. It would be hard for me or a lot of people to really give you advice on how to do it because I think, from a communication standpoint, you've kind of shown me and a lot of other people how uh, not only how important communications are, but how you can finesse a motherfucker like hard <laughs> in order to win over audiences that you would never win, you know? Like, and that's one, you know, when people talk about like your debates with Sank or Chank Uger and, and these people, I, I kind of get a little upset when people, I understand why people will look at Shank and say, oh, he's just a fucking nobody grifter. You beat his ass. He's a dumb, blah, 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 whatever they want to say. But I think the, the true, the true art, the true finesse 
comes in being able to talk to someone like that without having to resort to any of the character attacks, without having to resort to any of the sort of, oh, I see you for who you really are and you're, you're a shitty person kind of stuff. And being able to just sort of cut away at their points, you know, in a way that uh, ends up being like death by a thousand cuts. And you still haven't really like attacked their, you know, like an ad hominem attack on their person. That mm-hmm. you, you do a better job of convincing people through doing that. So, I mean, um, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know what advice I can give you. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I just, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts because I, you know, I think Glenn said this as well. I feel this way too. I, I do not think that I have always placed the line correctly. I think that there are moments where very legitimately someone could look, look at me, look at a segment and say, you know, did she even really object to what was being said? You know, did she ignore it because she doesn't yeah. actually care? And even more so, I would say when I'm in my private life, like, when I'm one-on-one with, you know, a Lyft driver or something, I very much don't take every opportunity to interrupt and correct um, because there's no audience, right? So it's like, yeah, you know, I, you, you assess, am I going to convince this person to not have this belief that I find to be objection, objectionable or bigoted in the course of the next 15 minutes of this ride? Do I want to derail this conversation where I might be able to make some progress to have a protracted conversation about, what I perceive to be some form of bias from this other person, you know, or do I just pretend I didn't hear that comment, keep it pushing and try to make sure this person at the very least votes for the next progressive candidate or, you know, sees themselves as a Medicare for all voter or, you know, reorients themselves politically in a way that might have more long-term effects than me fighting on this other battleground or maybe that's wrong maybe the electoralism aspect of it that i'm focused on is stupid and wrong and i should spend the next 15 minutes trying to convince them not to be a sexist or whatever it was that came out of their mouth yeah but i i as long as when they confront you with something honestly and ask you you know what do you think as long as you're not just trying to say something to appease them because you know what they want to hear on some george santos shit um then well, I, was, I think yeah, that's go ahead, okay. I'm sorry. Well, uh, you know, you can't, not every part of your life or every moment or every conversation you have with everybody can be a battle. And, I, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you build up credibility with people by sort of giving them the space to be heard before you say anything. And I, I think that's then right. they trust you more. When I was you know? coming back from Cleveland, um, I had this young black guy as a, as a Lyft driver to the airport and we were talking about, I don't know how it came up, but like Stacey Abrams and uh, Black Lives Matter and misappropriation of funds and, you know, how the protests happened and nothing really came out of it in 2020 for black people. And we were kind of riffing and he was talking about his political disaffectation and how he's tired of Democrats and Biden. And I was like, yeah, preach. And I was like, you know, hyping him up on that because <laughs> I had I had a plan for a pivot, you know. And then, like, right before we get to the airport, he's he goes into the, to, to a kind of, um, you know, I, I feel like these movements, like Black Lives Matter, they don't really care about black men. Stacey Abrams, they don't really care about black men. And I was like, yeah, like, I, I understand. I understand. I've heard that criticism before. And I understand why people feel, black men in particular, feel like they've been kind of left behind in some of the rhetoric. He goes, yeah, um, 
the organization was led by all these lesbians and they just don't care about black men. And I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think that's the reason why. <laughs> yeah, but that's it's one like, of the things. This that... is the moment, right? This is like, how much right. are we going to get into this right now? Clock's ticking down. Right. We're coming up the ramp. We see signs for Terminal A. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, it's. <sighs> You know, part of the difficulty of being a leftist, and I don't want to take up too much of your time because I know you always have a lot of callers, but part of the difficulty is explaining to someone why a concept like intersectionality is not just some woke bullshit, but a necessary sort of lens to view structural critiques and uh, to give explanations of the system that we're in today. Um, it takes a lot to like understand how marginally uh, people who are marginalized and and marginalization marginalization itself is used as a tool to keep a capitalist structure uh, chugging along and to keep people divided and to keep people uh uh sort of obedient to the billionaire class and the political elites that are already ruling us and that's a difficult conversation to have but um you know i do think I'm trying to think of the last time i really converted someone hard you know what's funny? It's not it's not on the the lesbian uh it's not like a cab driver who thought Black Lives Matter was bad because black lesbians. Um but I have been talking with a friend of mine about Force the Vote mm-hmm. who has listened to your podcast or Bad Faith on and off and I turned him on to it and he he's someone who's like an effective altruist. Um he's one of these guys who really believed in that stuff and uh I've seen him just over time sort of rethink his position on force the vote. He's rethinking some of his positions on, on the value of the squad over, um, you know, other candidates who can be in there who would, uh, that could perhaps uh, primary the squad or, mm-hmm. or other people. He's, he's coming around, but, you know, in those passing moments, I'm not sure what you would do. You know, to the Lyft driver, something like that, I'd say, well, maybe offer the alternative of, well, don't you think maybe it's more that people gain power in, a, in an organization that has a lot of people and capitalist groups willing to give them more and more money, and they start to compromise the validity or the goals of what the group set out to do in order to advance themselves and their own careers and their own brands? Like, don't you think that's more of an explanation than they love uh, other women and therefore they don't care about men? I think that's exactly right. I think redirecting to what the root, what my view of the root cause is, is right and good. However, some people might say that just doing that without confronting head on the kind of implicit homophobia there is endorsing it in some way, you know? And I don't know. I think if I had had an audience in that conversation in the car with me, especially if I had frankly had a gay audience in that car with me, I would have felt more compelled to say something about it, to defend the other person in the car, to make sure it doesn't seem like I was endorsing what was being said. And sometimes that was a little uncomfortable with me. Why would I behave, you know, that I would behave differently if, you know, my little brother were in the car with me versus being in the car by myself. Well, it's not either or, right? Like you can say something like, well, first, I don't think uh, being a black lesbian has anything to do with them caring about black men more than you being a black man has anything to do with you caring about women or men. 
or anyone else. Like, I think everyone's capable of being caring, but maybe we can talk like, but maybe even a black lesbian when put in this position and when given this access and when uh, unchecked by, uh, uh, you know, sort of more democratic processes within the organization, maybe they too would make the same uh, sort of grift or would make the same sort of financial uh personal decision made for personal financial gain that someone like a white man would or a black man would. And maybe that's a a greater critique of like a culture of individuality, which does not have a plan for uh, sort of pushing like a long-term plan for anyone really outside of the self. Um, And maybe that works into the critique. So I, you know, I, I do think though, I mean, I've been a lot more, because I found myself being passive before too, when people would say like anti LGBT stuff or anti trans stuff in particular. But for now, like now I I do feel a need to first say, no, I'm not down with that. Or like, I don't think that's it. And I think that's, that's exactly how they want you to think the people who actually have power, the people who are actually elites, you're being duped by buying into that logic because that logic maintains the power structure as it is. And if we have greater critiques about the power structure and uh, we can make a better understanding of, you know, qui bono, who is benefiting from these narratives continue to be perpetrated. um, You as a, as a person for believing in that are, you're getting duped and robbed. You're getting, you too are becoming like a victim to uh, anti LGBTQ like sentiments because you too are no longer being able to progress yourself because the enemy that you point to is not the real enemy. Mm-hmm. And maybe that gets them, you know, thinking like word. Yeah. Well, look, it can also get people feeling defensive and it's a, it's a catch. It's a, it's, it's true. A, it's a difficult situation. You just have to suss it up. I appreciate you buy it in for mooting that a little bit with me. And I appreciate all of the poor Lyft and Uber drivers who I torture with these endless conversations because I do be chatting an <laughs> <Yeah>. Uber. <laughs> sure. But thanks for calling yeah, it, Biden. All right. Keep the sure. faith. Bye. Oh, wait. Let me try and go and see if I can get Colorado boy back up. I mean, Carolina boy. Apologies. Um, I saw that you were having some technical issues. Will it let you unmute yourself now, Carolina? It did. Can you hear me? Yeah, loud and clear. What's on your mind tonight? Okay, cool. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to talk about the podcast, but really quick, I just want to get your thoughts on some stuff related to Martin Luther King Day today. Um, mm-hmm. And so this was interesting. I was uh, saw a clip from uh, Ben Shapiro's show where he was responding to some editorial articles. I don't, I don't remember which papers they were uh, written in uh, over the weekend that I think something that we need to do more often they were they were highlighting more of the views of martin luther king that people have generally glossed over the fact that he was a socialist he was a a very staunch anti-imperialist he said that america was systemically racist all of these things that just completely contradict the way that conservatives and the right try to frame martin luther king today as if he's just this guy that just believed in total colorblind um uh, race politics uh, ideology and that he would be opposed to all these leftists today, that they've gone too far to the left on the race issue. And the only thing he ever said was, um, the only thing he ever said was judged by character or content of character rather than skin color. And mm-hmm. they try to, and another thing I see a lot of these lawmakers, whenever they sign into bill 
into law these anti-critical race theory bills, they often quote Martin Luther King as if trying to make it look like he would have been against critical race theory. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm what I'm thinking is the more that people point out this side of his legacy, I feel like the right is going to work more to demonize Martin Luther King in the coming years. And that was that and I kind of got that vibe from this clip of Ben Shapiro. He was basically saying, yeah, well, Martin Luther King, he, he was kind of woke and he was crazy on those views. But we celebrate his um, he was just like, we celebrate this day because of his I have a dream speed, not because of his woke ideology and all that. Yeah, no, stuff. I saw I didn't see the segment, but I saw a tweet, his tweet. And everybody's skewering that tweet today. Basically, I'm going to cherry pick the parts of King that are convenient to my own ideology. And it's it, you're completely right in how so many conservatives character, you know, characterize King in order to make it convenient for their the kind of kind of color, colorblind ideology. And it might be the case that the more the you know socialist, anti-imperialist King is emphasized because of a more holistic type of history that is brought on by CRT, et cetera, you might see conservatives getting more confident with demonizing King. But like the the part of all of that discourse today and every Martin Luther King day that kind of gets on my nerves is that it's so many liberals criticizing conservatives for that sanitized version of King when they also don't right. talk about him being a socialist and also don't talk about socialism in their own lives. Like if, when Jamie Harrison is mad at Ben Shapiro. It's like, I can't enjoy that. Like, right. Okay. Jamie Harrison, what are you going to do? That's so King like, and I'm not trying to like conflate (laughs) the two. I'm not saying that Jamie Harrison and Ben Shapiro are like moral equivalents, but like at a certain point where we're talking about King, who's like in a completely other universe as both of them. It's like, I'll make my own criticisms of Ben Shapiro, but I'm not trying to like be on team Jamie Harrison. No, I, I agree with that. I'm uh. I'm just thinking that I just feel like as the more, especially as like we get a bigger, like actual left that's, um, you know, substantive and trying to get uh, real substantive, like things accomplished that are things that are what that King was pushing for rather than all of these like, you know, goofy cringe liberals who kind of just do all of the symbolic virtue signaling stuff and and that 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 they try to tie in with his name um i I still think that the right is going to try to do more to demonize him and smear him and uh, especially when the fbi files on him get released in 2027 and they're just gonna you know take verbatim whatever the fbi says about him even though right now they're trying to say anything the fbi says about you know whoever donald trump or alex jones or, or whatever is just or andrew tate is just something yeah so um yeah, their, their hypocrisy knows no bounds. Anyways, I just thought that was interesting. But mm-hmm. um, so I, I wanted to talk about the the podcast a little bit too, um, and I want to start with the Brazil stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't see that in the in the short clip, but um, before we get to that, I noticed there was a segment that y'all did on Rising about the events at uh, mm-hmm. in Brazil where y'all hosted some guest who had like an upside down American oh, flag. Boy, and oh, it seemed like it was really edited. I was just kind of curious what the story was behind that. Like, was that dude trolling? I don't know who that – I think that that was not a good guest selection. And I think somehow like, – he was recommended by somebody, and it was not a good recommendation. And it was not a guest I would have chosen. And so I think okay. the interview got edited down because so much of it was, I think – I'll speak for myself, not up to what I would consider to be editorial standards. That's how I would put it. <laughs> uh, so that's what that was. 
Yeah, Bree, sorry. Can, Hello? can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry. You, you, the last thing I heard you say, what he said was not what you'd consider, and then something. Up to editorial standards. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I thought I thought something about that segment seemed off, and something about that seemed weird. But um, so what? What did Glenn say on the podcast about the Brazil situation? Because uh, that wasn't in the. Oh, clip you haven't listened to it. I mean, I didn't see the full clip. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, to listen to the whole hour and forty minute interview, you can all find it at <laughs> patreon.com slash bad faith podcast. Um okay. I don't I mean I don't want to put words in his mouth, um, but I generally asked him about the media coverage of the protest at the Capitol in Brasilia and the comparisons that were being made to one six and how legitimate they are and what were the comparisons and the differences. Um Okay. Yeah, stuff stuff like that. Yeah, so um, you know, I have uh, not at all been a fan of Glenn for like the last uh, two years. Uh, I've, I've been actually very critical of him. Uh, I loved the journalism that he used to do. He was my favorite journalist. The Snowden story that he did reporting on, I thought was legendary. His reporting on Lula, I thought was absolutely some of the most legendary reporting of, you know, South American politics, probably in decades. Um, but I have a lot of the criticisms that a lot of leftists have of him the past couple of years. I think, um, I personally don't think that he's acting in good faith. Um, and I've seen that a lot of uh, even Brazilian and South American leftist media has turned on him. I saw that, and I'm, I'm by no means any expert on the Brazilian politics, so I can't quite judge the... Um, everything that he's saying about any any criticisms that um, he's making about Brazil these days. But to me, it just looks like I see some shift in tone that aligns with the shift that I've seen him talk in the last couple of years about uh, most politics here in America. And, you know, I'm also seeing that actual um, – People who I don't think many would question their lefty credentials, like Ben Norton or like uh, Telesur, the um, the South American, the, like the biggest South American leftist media outlet that was uh, ripping Glenn over this weekend for uh, saying that he's uh, doing like pro Bolsonaro propaganda at this point. And then also, I don't yeah, know if I've he said seen, any, I've seen yeah. that, and I I keep waiting to like I'm not trying to be coy, but like. I keep waiting to hear what the pro Bolsonaro content is, especially since on the podcast, all he had was negative things to say about Bolsonaro. And mm-hmm. so I, I just, I keep, what, do you know specifically what Glenn is supposed to have said that, um, well, pro Bolsonaro? I, I, mean, I know that. I, and by the way, I have a Brazil episode coming up. Um, I'm recording later this week because I'm so curious about the, this question, about this question. Oh, are you having somebody from a or one of those Brazilian reporters? Yeah, I'm having someone who reports from Brazil, yeah. Okay, no, that's good. Um, I would love to, like, hear more. Like, the, the thing, like, Brazil, it's just so much history and nuance that I just am not up to speed yet, so it's hard for me to understand. What I have seen them criticizing a lot of it is, um, I guess, essentially, he's trying to say that Brazil is now doing, uh, uh, is turning into a censorship regime similar to what he's been criticizing the United States against um the uh, against Bolsonaro supporters, and he's been very critical of the Brazilian Supreme Court. That's what I understand. I don't know 
uh, enough about like the specific policies that they've enacted, but I've seen like what the um, what these Brazilian outlets are that are that are attacking Glenn are saying basically is that uh, like the Brazilian law, like uh, the Brazilian they don't laws have the First against... Amendment protections that we have. They are they can legally prohibit speech in a much more expansive way than it exists in America. And Glenn's an American with American First Amendment. Mac kind mm-hmm. of free speech maximalist tendencies. Brazil mm-hmm. is a country where they've chosen a different route, and it seems like there's a clash there. No, is that not basically what's happening? Yeah, I, I guess. I guess the main thing they're trying to say is that Brazilian law is different. So I guess. I guess that's. Yeah, I guess that's another way of putting it. Uh, but that's what Glenn said on the podcast. So, that yeah. I mean, like, it's not that it's illegal. Like here, we argue, oh, that's an illegal violation of speech, or that's at least in the spirit. The spirit of that is against the First Amendment, even if we're not talking about something that actually implicates the First Amendment. We make these arguments around and around again. But the reality is that in other countries, Europe, a lot of places, there's many more allowances to infringe on speech. And yeah. maybe you like maybe it's, sometimes it's a good thing, like right to privacy stuff in Europe, and you know mm-hmm. maybe someone likes you know that you're not allowed to espouse Nazism in Germany, you know things like that. Mm-hmm. Like you, could, you, there's a perfectly good argument for those things being good, but Glenn and a lot of Americans feel very differently, partly because how we've been brought up with the importance of the First Amendment, and it seems like you know it seems like that might just be. I'm, I'm trying to get to the bottom of like, if, if, if there's, if there's, there is, a, in fact, the law allows you to do more what we would call censorship in Brazil. And they are, in fact, doing that, maybe for good reasons to like, I mean, what people might on the left might see as good reasons, like censoring a right winger like Bolsonaro. But Glenn, on principle, as an American, thinks that under no circumstances should that kind of approach be taken. I mean that doesn't strike me. Yeah, as, that doesn't. Yeah, to me that like, doesn't either strike me as hip- as any. It like, just is what it is, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, and it doesn't uh, strike me as indicating a, an affection for Bolsonaro. That just seems like Glenn having the principle that he's always had as like a former yeah. ACLU guy who would defend the Nazis in Skokie or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I, I would say you know my main the, the main thing that I have noticed um, and. In, in recent times, it seems just his general tone in talking about Brazilian politics now is softer on Bolsonaro and a little more critical of Lula than it was, you know, pre-2019. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me also, one of the things that I was really curious about, I don't know if you talked to Glenn about it on his podcast, um, you know, just Glenn, I, it seems to me that he just cannot, he, he has made a conscious decision. I don't know where it's conscious or not, but it, to me, I, I mean, the incentives to me seem like with the ability to frequently go uh, on Tucker Carlson's show and Tucker being one of the biggest bootlicking cuck for Bolsonaro in the entire planet of media, going there and doing ridiculous propaganda for him. Um, it seems to me like Glenn would you know especially now that he's broken away from the intercept and now he's trying to build his own independent media audience with his substack and everything he can't be as tough against bolsonaro when a lot of his audience is being drawn in from tucker carlson's show well look i i I highly recommend you listen to the podcast because he talks about that he talks about how tucker carlson said some blatant lie about bolsonaro on his show and he he did address that i'm sorry 
So he did address the Bolsonaro. Yeah, he said he called him up and 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 read him the riot act and told him all the ways in which he was wrong and was lying on his program. And Tucker was like, "Okay, well, let me let me understand." And they talked about it. I don't know what the outcome of it was or whether Tucker ever issued a correction. But apparently, I don't think so. Yeah, Glenn also went on his show and explained why Tucker was all wrong, and so it wasn't just a behind closed doors conversation. And that's something that happened. So I don't. Again, I don't know what the resolution of that ended up being. But he addressed, I mean, he addressed it, and he seemed to be genuinely irritated by Tucker's bad take. But I don't know. Maybe it's all performance art, but that's that's how it came across. Someone else who's listened to the, the full episode, weigh in and let us know what you took took away from that exchange. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I think that uh, would be, you know, worth uh, listening to. Um, and I saw that, I, 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 you know, I think people should also – uh, check out some of I, like I would love to hear a discussion between like Ben Norton and Glenn on Brazilian stuff. I know some of the things that they criticized was there was some tweet where uh, he like people were asking him you know why is the U.S. supporting Lula's return to the presidency and he was like oh, it's complicated but there's nothing that the U.S. hates more than a right wing uh, populist being in power in South America or something like that. And, it, you know, Ben and a lot of other I think people who with good like South American lefty credentials were criticizing him, saying that the U.S. has continuously like routinely done coups like for like for installing right wing governments in South America. And like the idea that they just hate Bolsonaro because he's a right wing guy like doesn't add up. I I don't know. I and I don't say this as somebody like who takes joy in like criticizing Glenn. Like he was like my number one favorite journalist. But I, I just get so disappointed with, I mean, all of his takes, like, you know, domestic and foreign. Um, and I wonder whether, like, when he goes on shows like yours or other lefty media outlets, he's taking, like, he's he's be- sounding more nuanced. Like, in the clip that I saw about the Twitter files today, he seemed, like, pretty reasonable and nuanced compared to how I think he sounds a lot of times that he goes on these right-wing shows. And so, I don't know. I just... Um, I want to see better from from Glenn in general. Uh, A lot of stuff that he's done the recent years has just really driven me absolutely insane. So, Uh, but anyway, I appreciate what Glenn always says. He, people should look. I I think Glenn would admit to Twitter not being the best influence on him or any of us. Um, And he, you know, he always says like things are better in person. I, I think that that's true, and I think that a lot of this – this is why we first had him on to talk to Nathan Robinson when they were arguing on Twitter. And I wish I had the power to have him and, like, Taylor Lorenz on every time one of those scraps pops off or anybody else. I know that Bronco Martich just had a debate with Glenn. I haven't had a chance to watch it, but mm-hmm. I'm sure it was productive and good. And he, which, the one mm-hmm. thing you got to say about Glenn is that he's always willing to sh- show up and talk about it, and in my experience – when people actually talk it through in real life, none of the ways it's, – it's much, it's much more difficult to caricature Glenn the way that I think he gets caricatured on the internet. And I'm not saying it's not – he's not partly responsible <laughs> for yeah. the way he gets caricatured on the internet. Like I said, like the internet we, – we don't all behave at our, at our best on Twitter all the time, myself very much included. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also don't know that I, I'm not, I'm not of the mind that Twitter Glenn is the real Glenn. And maybe that's because yeah. I have the privilege of talking to Glenn, but given that he makes yeah. himself so, so available, I think that everyone should just try to talk to Glenn. I don't yeah. Know. No, you see, this is my, uh, 
I, I, I slightly disagree with that, partly because one, like, I know Glenn, Glenn is very smart. Glenn is brilliant. You know, he was uh, an attorney. He, you know, he went to a very good law school. He was a very good defense attorney. He's, um, he, he's incredibly intelligent. He knows how to talk. He knows how to debate. And I feel like most of these conversations is just him being able, like, he's, he's open to conversations and critics because he's better at being able to debate uh, and rationalize any position that he wants um, more so than I think it is that he actually supports and, and believes in it. And it, for me, it's not just like him, you know, constantly uh, being, uh, you know, mean to whoever on Twitter. Like, I generally don't care about that. I mean, like a lot of his, the stuff that he says these days, um, he just seems to try to shoehorn into every issue some point about how liberals are hypocrites which is just kind of stale and, and tiresome and, and dull, I think, at this point. But it's for me, it's a lot of the, the positions and the stuff that he actually says the, and the stuff that he actually puts his effort into. And for me, the thing that permanently extinguished all of his credibility was when in the wake of the, um, the uh, Buffalo mass lynching of the, this Peyton Gendron guy or whatever that shot 10 people and stuff, you know, instead of when someone like Glenn has a massive platform with a lot of right-wing audience followers, and he could try to use it in a way to try to push back against this white nationalist ideology or anything like that. He instead chose to use all of his effort to um, to slobber the dog shit off of Tucker's boots and talk about how uh, everyone cannot criticize Tucker and try to create all these red herrings and false equivalencies that I thought were pretty bad face, trying to equate this terrorist with like the Bernie Sanders guy that tried to assassinate some politicians. I don't think that's not a moral equivalency for me. You know, I, the somebody who goes out and targets innocent civilians, a marginalized group is nowhere near, uh, is far worse than, you know, some somebody that went out and tried to assassinate a politician. Well, people have always tried to assassinate politicians. Both of them are wrong and, and immoral. No, wasn't wasn't the argument there not that that guy wasn't, hateful and racist and driven by white supremacy. But the argument was about whether or not it was fair to blame Tucker Carlson in particular for the attack. And that there was a conversation happening at the time about the slippage between kind of um, replacement, replacement theory, Tucker promoting replacement theory, the relationship between replacement theory and straight up just white nationalism and the white nationalism slash replacement theory that was referenced in the, um, what do you call it? Manifesto or whatever of mm -hmm. the Buffalo shooter. Yeah. Now, like, yeah. I, I'm I'm of the belief that, frankly, if you're Tucker Carlson and you don't take a good hard look in the mirror about the similarities between what this guy was referencing and what you've been yes. preaching, like, I don't know what's wrong with you. However, yeah. like, I think the argument that's being made is. Is the liberal media fair in saying this? Guy, but for Tucker Carlson, basically, this guy wouldn't have killed all these people. Like this, Tucker Carlson is an accessory to homicide, or you know that, that yeah, kind of well, line of reasoning. I, I absolutely disagree with that. I'm, I'm not, you know, and I don't know how many people are actually making like that specific point. Mm. I mean, I, I think that that I, I think that in general, like it just seemed to me like he was trying to shut down all debate and any criticism and deflect anybody from talking about how this dude's manifesto read like an average Tuesday night monologue on Tucker's show. And 
essentially run defense for him and the replacement theory. And I just find that, and it, you know, it, not even that, the fact that he just didn't even offer any kind of like his own pushback or criticism or like talking about how the ideology was, um, is a problem and an issue and it's spreading online and it's getting, mm-hmm. you know, people of marginalized groups killed. I mean, this dude, like the manifesto, it was an instruction manual as well for trying to like make this a repeat thing to happen. And Tucker, when he did his first show afterwards, he completely downplayed the entire event and tried to just lump it in with a bunch of other crime that happened that weekend, make himself look like a victim, try to pretend like, oh, we don't know this guy was left wing or right wing. And then the first guest that he had on his show to, you know, nod along with all of his beliefs and help him, uh, you know, look like a victim was Glenn. And that just, that, that to me, like optics alone is terrible, but like the substance of all that just absolutely disgusts me. So you know, that's that's my opinion. I, I don't, you know, I'm not asking you to to condemn Glenn or anything like that. I, I get it. Like people, like sometimes some of these, I, you know, arguments can be like good faith disagreements, things like that. Personally, I don't think Glenn is acting in good faith. We can agree to disagree on that. Um, you know, generally, I like a lot of m- most of your content, and I would just say the one thing is like you probably are like my favorite person, like lefty independent media that whose takes like I agree with the most. And I just hope that no matter what, no matter how many of these like bad incentives to do some sort of, you know, right wing, uh, you know, right wing grift tap dance, that you stay true to your values, which I see that you have so far pretty well. Like, I feel like the incentives have been pretty clearly promoted. Well, look, I, you know. I get it. And look, I'll say this. I get, if, if I had my druthers, I also, I don't remember exactly what Glenn said. I do have more of a memory of what Tucker said, or at least I have the memory of my emotional response to Tucker's response to the Buffalo shooting. Mm-hmm. Even if I am, mm-hmm. it's been too long for me to remember the specifics. And I think right. the specifics in these instances are important for credibility reasons. I do think right. a lot of people lose credibility by kind of charging Tucker with more than they can actually um, prove. And I don't want to be. I want. Yeah. I don't want to do that. Even though I think I remember being gr- disgusted by Tucker's take. But yeah. I, so if I had my druthers, yes, I would prefer that if Glenn were going to take the moment to make a pr- what I think can be a perfectly principled argument that it's not fair to attribute a mass shooting to other people's rhetoric that's rather attenu- attenuated from it all. That at the same time you make that argument. You make it very, very clear that you think the substance of what this guy believed was horrific and that everyone should recommit to being against white nationalism and bigotry. Because, yes. you know, I, I would like that emphasized more. I And I, you know, I would. Yeah. Okay. No, that's good. I I, I really appreciate you. Thanks for letting me come in. You know, I, I think that you're great. I I enjoy, uh, you know, your podcast and seeing you on the, um, on the rise and, and, uh, I look forward to the episode on Thursday, and I, I think if anyone interviews Glenn, I like seeing it from someone like you who can, you know, debate him pretty well. Because I that's what I think. I think he is one of like the best debaters, and a lot of these people they try to like have these conversations with him, and and they're not able to really like. Yeah, Glenn's smart. Um, people get so, mad yeah. at Glenn because he's smart. <laughs> I part of it is that like Glenn's nobody's fool, you know, and I I I appreciate the privilege of being able to talk to him for that reason too, because it, it helps to hone and develop my own arguments as well. So thanks for calling in Carolina boy. Yeah. Thanks Bree. All right. Care. Keep the faith. Brent, what's on your mind tonight? Hi, can you hear me? Yes, I can. What's on your mind? 
So, um, I watched your segment where you talked about the kid who got shot by the guy who was trying to pr- mm-hmm. uh, protect the car because he was steal the. Apparently, the kid was stealing from the car. And let me be very clear before I say this: there is no justification to shoot someone like that. That's totally unacceptable. So, but I've been reading your critics. And I could see why your your quote unquote critics they're able to fool a lot of people because the arguments they bring up are about um, people's livelihoods being affected by their vehicle being taken away. Like if they lose their vehicle, they can't make money. Then they get evicted. Then these commenters ask them ask the question: Should these people be allowed to be evicted or not? What is is Bree gonna? I saw one comment say, "Is Bree gonna pay their mortgage?" She's privileged, so she could buy her another car. But yet, other people, she doesn't understand the plight of working class people who lose their cars. It it could be it could ruin their lives. And um, I hear other arguments saying that by stealing a car, you're you're playing stupid games, so you deserve stupid prizes. You should expect stupid prizes like being shot and killed. And other arguments I hear is like escalation by trying to steal someone's car. You're putting yourself in a situation where you get shot. So you, the the person committing a crime, should expect that knowing in. How do you address these um, critics? Like, because a lot of these people are regular working class people who probably don't know or probably convinced by these criticisms and just want to hear your take on that. The man who shot the 13 year old child was not the owner of the car in question. Right. Even if he, even if he was, it doesn't, it, but he wasn't. it still doesn't make, but, it, but he right. wasn't. So right. the fact pattern we have today is that a man heard a noise outside of his house in the middle of the night, chose to come out of the safety of his house with a loaded gun, pointed it in the dark at someone who he presumed was breaking into a car that was not his own, and shot him. And so I don't have to argue with anybody. Because the law, and this case is actually on my side. You're not allowed to fucking shoot people. Because you think some shenanigans are going on in the street. So I don't have to debate a goddamn person. That man's going to go to jail. Right. (laughs) Like, he's going to jail. Right, right. No, but but, but even if he was was the owner, I still don't feel that that still is not right. And even if it wasn't a child, it's still not right. And even if the guy was a hardened criminal, it still isn't right. Because you're not allowed the, the penalty for theft is not murder, and there's not an object on this planet that is more precious than a human life. And that is not something that I will be debating with anybody. If you don't, right. on its face, understand that a human life is more valuable than any pro- Why do we care? Why do we care that someone might lose their livelihood and lose their house? Because they're a human life, and they're under stress and trauma, and we don't want them to go through that? You know what's also traumatic? Having three bullets put in you because some random person decided to wake up with their gun, come out, and shoot you. We could find out right, tomorrow right. that this and person wasn't even. We could find out that tomorrow this is this person's car. That that a, that, a, that a mom who lived down the street said, "Hey, I left I left the, my grocery bags in the back of the car. Can you and your brothers go down and get it out the back?" 
We could find out tomorrow any number of things. But what we know is that a stranger who's none, who this was none of their business decided to project this elaborate fantasy of how this was a working class person's car that was going to lose their job if they didn't have this car because I guess they don't have car insurance. And that magically all of that he was he was put this vigilante fantasy on it and was going to go out in the world and start shooting people. Okay, so whoever said play stupid games win stupid prizes, the stupid game that got played in this scenario is somebody who thought they were Batman and could run out in the street and shoot people. And the consequence of it is they shot a 13-year-old child. They have to live with being a murderer for the rest of their lives. The only crime that we know got committed for sure was the crime of homicide. And the penalty for that is prison. So play stupid games, win stupid prizes. God, you are um, you are great. And another question: Have you changed Robbie's mind? Because maybe is he is he being paid by Rising to debate the other side to have a, a, a debate? Like, is he being paid off? I mean, what what's going on? No, you guys, nothing is that Machiavellian. <laughs> Look, Robbie, Robbie feels the way that so many people in the comments felt. Like, many people feel like if you transgress in the least, you deserve getting shot. Look, we just had this teacher. We had this young black man who is a middle middle school teacher, high school teacher, who had a who was in a car accident, called the police because you know that's what you do when you're in a car accident. Had a panic attack on the side of the road, and when the police came, tased him and killed him. And there are people in the comment sections of every tweet about this young man. Uh, he shouldn't have had a panic attack. <laughs> he should have complied. These just, people think just... that these. These people, and I gotta say, I was I was arguing about this. I was I was pretty livid about this. I watched Super Eight last night. I was chilling watching Super Eight, and because I my we had just watched the Fablemans, and my friend was like talking about how great the Fablemans was, and I was like, it's not that great. Super Eight has all these same Spielberg themes in it, and it's I got a better plot. So we were watching Super Eight, <laughs> and. I was like thinking that every single thing that people have said in the comments about why this kid deserved to die, these little white children in this movie were doing. They, Ellie Fanning broke out of her house at night, stole her dad's car underage, drove her through the streets, broke into one of the other little boys' house, crawled in through the window. They broke into the school, broke into a teacher's trailer outside of the school, stole his property, brought it into the school in the AV room, started playing videos. So we have breaking and entering on many occasions. We have breaking and stealing a car, underage joyriding, endangering the lives of all the minors in the back. And according to the, the big brains on the Internet, all four or five of those little white kids in suburban Ohio deserve to have a bullet put in the back of, backs of their head, no questions asked, by any given vigilante in the neighborhood who thought they were up to no good. Now, everybody knows that that's absurd. And what really pisses me off is the idea that everyone knows that's absurd because who would shoot a dear little blonde girl like Ellie L. Fanning? This is not L. Fanning's fault, obviously. <laughs> But this is this is the world we live in, where people see a thirteen-year-old child, and where I see my little, I see my brother as a thirteen-year-old. They see a thug and someone whose life is not worth saving, that uh, someone whose life is not worth more than a car, and that is unacceptable to me. And I will not be arguing with it. And frankly, it's fucking racist. I don't say that on Rising because there's no point in me saying it. No one cares. No one believes that racism exists. But it's true. <laughs> Right, because I wanted to ask, 
because I mean, a lot of hate on the comics. People think that I'm on the other. No, but I just want to hear your position because I knew you were very uh, uh, measured, and you're tr and you're trying to give Robbie hints. You're trying to save him from his frankly uh, idiotic take. I mean, I just can't believe that someone would think that someone's car is more worth more than someone's life. It's just unbelievable to me. And yeah, it is racist. I think it's racist because they see a, they see a black person, they think thug, criminal, and dangerous. That's what they're thinking, and it's just not right. So, you, thank you for confirming what I was thinking about how absurd Robbie's comments were. I just I just couldn't believe it. And I know you're you're on TV, so you can't use swear words, but <laughs> I had a feeling you were thinking that, and you were you were saying Robbie. Like kind of trying to scold before. him. Like, I like Robbie, but like all I can do, I can't convince somebody. If you're sometimes you get to a point where it's like your morals aren't my morals. I can't change your morals. Right. Like your morals are not my morals. All I can say is what I think is the most obvious sentence in the world: that a car is right. not worth more than a human life, particularly a child's life. I'll, that's all I can right. say. And I can't I make it any clearer than that. And if I say that to right, you right. and you're saying, but what about this kind of car and that kind of car? And what if it's a Tesla? And what if I needed to work my construction job? And da 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 da. I don't have anything else to say to you. Okay. You think then that the car is worth more than this 13 year old? You think it was worthwhile and good and right and legal and proper to shoot a 13 year old? You just told the whole world that, that will live in posterity right here in this clip on the internet. And you just got to live with that. That's between you and God. I can't do anything else from here. <laughs> and, and that's going to scare, that's going to paint a perception about libertarians because they, he, he, he proclaims repeatedly that he's a libertarian. Yet people are going to think if that's what libertarians think, they're crazy. And I, that's not fair for libertarians either, but that's what people are, they're going to think, oh my God, like this guy is freaking crazy and he's wearing a nice suit and speaking on tv i mean it's just it's just crazy because there's been situations where i would try to open a door and i realize it's the exact same color as my car yet it's not my car right i mean do i deserve to be shot i mean no just absolutely cra like and Look, I, I'm, I just I'm, the, I'm the goodest little girl that ever was, so I've, I don't think I've actually ever committed a crime. But I know plenty of people who stayed shoplifting through their entire teenage years, who, right. like, lived to shoplift. Shoplifted for no reason, just taking lip balms from Victoria's Secret and all of that kind of stuff all the time. We all know that that's what adolescents do. Not me. I was a saint. But other people do <laughs> shit like that all the time. Not to mention all the drugs that kids do and all of this stuff. Like, everybody does it. Okay, some kids get thrown in jail and shot and some kids get nothing bad happened to them at all. And that's exactly why our prisons are filled with disproportionately young black and Latino men who've done the exact same things at the exact same statistical rates as white people. But nobody thinks it's bad when it's Elle Fanning doing it. Sorry to yeah, keep all of it on Elle Fanning. The rest of the cast, I don't know their names. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was, I was repeating it, and apparently they, they this, did. What, they really this? wanted to cast it from unknown, so everybody else is an unknown. All the other kids in the movie. Oh, is this a movie or? Oh yeah, Super Eight. Super Eight is. It's a Spielberg, J.J. Uh, Abrams flick. It, don't worry about it. From like some years back. Anyhow, okay, sounds good. Anyhow. Wow. Okay. Well, th thank you for your your insight, and you basically confirmed what I was thinking. 
what you were thinking when you were on that set. I just, just I was just like, wow. I, wow. So anyway, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for calling in. Keep the beat. <laughs> All, right, All right. Jam. What's on your mind tonight, my friend? Yo, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you, Jam, loud and clear. Awesome. How's your night going tonight? I'm doing all right. I'm the the weekend, the long weekend, is not a change in my schedule because I don't ever have rising on Mondays, and obviously, mm. other than that, I'm self employed. But um, so I I'm, I still feel like I the Monday scaries that I experience on Monday nights instead of Sunday nights are somehow <laughs> exaggerated because of the holidays. So I know the benefits of the holiday, but more trepidation about the week starting for some reason. But it's fine. It's fine. All is well. How are you? What's on your mind? Uh, I'm I'm good tonight. I'm excited to be able to talk to you on a Monday night. Like usually I'm working on Monday nights. So I don't get to call in on the Mondays. Oh. And like the the Monday episodes be flame. So I'm <laughs> super, super excited that I get to, get to talk to you on this oh, one. I'm glad like, you made it to the top. I and mean, what's on your oh, mind yeah. then? Excited. Like this was a, I love every time you have like Glenn on, um, I really thought that after it was him, you brought had the episode with him and uh, who was his name, like Nathan Robinson, that you was really on getting your bag with like settling Twitter debates with people, and I like I really, cause I really loved how you just being like the intermediary between mm-hmm. that, and that was that was dope. And uh, if everybody didn't watch the whole episode, pay the five bucks to get it. Like it's really good. Um, I like Glenn for for a lot of his like Brazil like reporting. I mean, without him, I probably wouldn't would have known too much about like Brazilian politics. And everything and it was cool to see to see um the critiques from both of you on like the twitter files like this is probably like, the first time i got to see any um like real really like good faith like critiques on it because before i didn't really have any like uh c- couldn't really like see any outside of like like you no know, bad liberal takes like bad liberal like um critiques like on it so it was really um mm. it was really refreshing like to see that and to hear it Good, I'm glad. You know, this goes back to all of the stuff, the, the Tucker Carlson, the conversation with Biden about having credibility. I mean, there, there's a real problem when, when you're someone like Glenn or Matt or whomever who has, I think, taken some countercultural takes over time that have really mm-hmm. paid off, right? Like not listening to the consensus and, and having a lot of journalistic courage has really paid off for our whole community, right? Yeah. The reporting that they've done has been so important. I think you get to a, pl- but you get all this backlash too, right? And I think it's very, I've said this before, it's very easy to get to a place where you feel like you can't listen to anybody because there's so much bad faith critique. And if you had listened to everyone in the first instance, <laughs> you never would have done the reporting that was so po- is so important. Oh my God. And yeah. so it's so, it's important to have spaces where you really do think, where you, you know, people who you really can trust to not take mm-hmm. cheap shots and to give, constructive feedback and who really share your values and are going to be open to listening to you without rushing to try to make you out into a monster. And maybe that means that someone in my position who tries to create that space is overly credulous at times, but I would be rather be overly credulous and give people a bit more benefit of the doubt when no one else in the world is really giving that benefit of the doubt and create a space for them to like still listen to what I think are good critiques Mm -hmm. than to just join the chorus um, and risk making someone feel so isolated that sometimes they do kind of make avoidable mistakes. Not to yeah, sound so presumptuous that I think I can tell Glenn anything about his life or anything, but you know, I want that for well, me. Yeah. I feel like, you know, like that's one of the reasons I said, like, uh, told you a lot of times, like kind of like engaged in the same, like political project, like talking to other people. 
like within like other sides of the aisle. And like, this, this is the whole reason why like yours is like the only podcast like, I got paid for, you know, because it's like, I feel like it's the only, you one of the only people that's willing, like willing like, to have like a good faith, like, um, conversations about it. like, you don't really fuck with like that, you know, like the conversation with, um, the interview you did with, uh, What's his name? Kirk. I was ready to slide his ass when he was talking to him. He was just, he was so fucking wild. But like, I'm, I'm so much appreciate. Yeah, like I so much appreciate. Like, yeah, you're still willing like to have like a good faith like critique and let people get like they, they um, you know, like they points off without just being like too like hyperbolic, like jumping jumping on them and actually like like I said engage with them, you know, honestly, everything like that. Um, and I, I like that about I like that about like Glenn too. Uh, Glenn like whether he's like right or wrong, I felt like Glenn like he doesn't like he doesn't try to hide the fact if you, like if somebody's pointing out to him that he's wrong, like he'll like confront it like yeah yeah like I was probably on some bullshit on that, you know like <laughs> yeah. he's not like he's not like he's not like not afraid you know like not afraid to say that. And I like the fact that like he's very much so willing like to, like to talk to anybody. And like like um, for the person that came on earlier was talking about. Um, was talking about him, like talking about uh, what's his name, um, Tucker Carlson. Yeah, I like mm-hmm. how, like, you know, like he did, like, address it, and a lot of that stuff was brought up too with the conversation with him and like uh, Nathan Robson and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like, you should go back a- and listen to that, by the way, if they haven't. I, you know, to the ex- I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna like have that same conversation with Glenn every time he comes in the podcast because I think it's you know a little exhausting. But yeah, we had it out for like two hours before. So if yeah. you have any concerns about me pushing back with Glenn and like having specific examples of moments when mm-hmm. he could have pushed back against Tucker and all of that, Nathan came with a whole list of receipts and we went through it all line by line like two years ago on the yeah. podcast. So go back and listen. Yeah, mm-hmm. It was a good episode. And this one, this one was like, like another long one. Like y'all, y'all touched on like a bunch of different, like a bunch of different things. Like I really was, I was so feeling it when, um, I can't remember if it was you or Glenn who brought up saying that, um, Kind of like speaking to like the feeling that's almost almost feels like easier to talk to right wing people about like certain things, mm-hmm. uh, you know, than like some people on the left because I, I feel that like so much. Like I've been, I have more issues with more of my left, uh, more like my Democratic family members than I do with with a lot of like the, oh, these old white uh, conservative dudes that I meet mm-hmm. uh, like down here like all the times, like especially when it's coming, um, when it's like say something like about guns or anything. If I would just bring up. Like another person's perspective, like oh, you just you know, like you just caping for them, this, this, and that. I'm like, man, like it's, it's not that deep, y'all. Like, <laughs> you know, like I've been, I was, I've been like ostracized for like not voting for Biden. Like, but I still don't get how these motherfuckers want to vote for Biden after you said that black shit. But you know, we ain't, we ain't gonna talk about that shit again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but it's that, yeah. that that shit, I, I can't. I, it's so weird, and it's, 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 I do think it's a um. I wonder what you what you think about it. like why do you think it's it's more it's easier to have um well yeah why do you think it's easier to talk to to people like on the right in certain in certain like circumstances about things they may disagree with than it is on people on the left? I mean, on some level, I think it's just that I don't have an expectation that they're going to agree with me and vice versa right off the bat. So it's not mm-hmm. like you know it's like the way that family can get under your nerves more than strangers can. Like you you can kind of detach and be like, well, I don't really care. Because we're coming, I know that we have different ideological priors, and like maybe we're not going to meet up on next Wednesday. And you can celebrate the small wins more because you didn't really expect to win anything with them. But I also think it's a kind of um, there is a kind of I don't know. I don't want to buy in too much to the idea that the left is like uniquely fractured, and that the infighting is something unique to the left, and. 
the one true Scotsman attitude is, you know, a left phenomenon. I don't know <laughs> that I believe that is true per se. And I, I, I don't know. I'm just thinking it through because my lens is also so much through like the left media, eco, media ecosystem in particular. Oh, yeah. yeah as opposed to just cool. leftists that are like normal people and not yeah. Internet people. Because on the internet, I do think there's something about the left media ecosystem being smaller and less powerful that makes it feel more competitive, maybe, that causes some of the infighting and the desire to frame oneself as like a superior leftist to the other person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I think that the right, I think part of it is that the left feels very deeply that there is a moral underpinning to the things that we believe in. Mm-hmm. And outside of some issues that are rooted in evangelical Christianity, like the abortion issues and some of these issues around kids, conservatives, you know, I don't think they're, they're not saying we got to like balance the budget because a balanced budget is a human right. You know, they're not saying like we got to, uh, cancel the IRS because like we care deeply about the morality of poor people getting audited. Like they're not, they're not walking around talking in human rights terms. They're they're They have like this idea of the hand of the market and the things will function better if things are liberal or, you know, are libertarianized and, mm-hmm. you know, they, you know, but it's not like we, we think stuff is like, morally implicated so that when we disagree on stuff passions just go through the roof you're a bad person you're an immoral person um the stakes are so high and you got in the way of something that could have been really important because 68 million people die every year from lack of health insurance and you wouldn't even force the vote and i don't think that's like wrong i think there are moral stakes and i think it is depraved to have a, a politics that doesn't implicate morality and that's why i'm not on the right but, I mean, I think it sometimes does, I won't say get in the way, but people can lose the forest for the trees because the, the part of humanity you should be focusing the most on is not your moral righteousness, but the fact that the person you're talking to is also a human being that you're ostensibly fighting for in the first place. Yeah, like that. Like that's the whole point. Like it seems like, I feel like, you know, we get to, like a lot on the left get to try to be like, become too like morally superior than 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 thou and then than anybody else and in and in that like in that um self-imposed like fight you know, a lot of people end up like forgetting about like the whole point like you know like you just said you know, like um, it causes cause like blind spots and like solving like the actual problems that um people are speaking about um trying like to solve mm-hmm. but i did want to um i wanted to tell you like you definitely need to start a show called breeze lift uh i mean bleed a uh, breeze uh uber conversations <laughs> Because every episode you bring you bringing up some some cool conversation and everything, I think that would be a dope podcast. You just <laughs> talking about you just talking about all your um all your uh, conversations that you have with your left and uh, Uber drivers. <laughs> I need to I need to learn how to drive and then maybe just drive a lift myself. Oh, you don't know how to drive? Oh, well, yeah, yeah, I guess that, that makes sense. You you live in New York and you was like overseas a lot. Um, yeah, younger. I never learned. Yeah, I, I, never I, learned. I guess that makes sense. But I mean, it, it, I know that's like a, it's like a stupid trope, and it's there's something obviously kind of uh, elitist about the idea that the only time I'm talking to anybody outside of my silo is when I'm in a in a lift. But honestly, like, 
when who else am I talking to? It's not like I'm in school. It's not like I have a job. <laughs> no, it's not like I go into an office or you know, I talk to people at the rising studios, but like, like <laughs> who am I really talking to? Honestly. So I, you know, that is what it is. I feel it. Right, I feel it. And I want to, um, uh, one, one last thing I just wanted to bring up, I'm, then I'm going to uh, hop off again. It's going to take like, it's a great episode. But I'm starting uh, like a podcast just talking about like black films. And when I get my, um, I'd love to record like an episode with you talking about the color purple. Like if I'm going to talk oh by God. anybody I'm about sold. the color purple. Okay, <laughs> say no more. Say less. I'm in. I'm gonna shoot you, I'll shoot you like a DM, like a Twitter and everything. So we set up some times. I definitely need to talk to you about about the color purple. Perfect. <laughs> I can't wait. Speaking of Spielberg films, I'm 100 percent in. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. So you saw my Super Eight. I remember when Super Eight came out. Like going on a date to go see that, and like oh, yeah? the person I went on a date with, mm. she was terrified of spiders. <laughs> like it was a big spider monster. So I was like, it made the, the date so wild and so weird. <laughs> Isn't that why guys take, take girls to scary movies so they like cling on them and whatnot? I mean, we didn't know it was a scary movie. <laughs> like, you know, we just, I'm like, I'm a big, like, I'm a super big movie fan. And like, Spielberg's one of my favorite, like, directors, like, mm-hmm. especially because he does a lot of like animation stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I was like, yo, let's go see this uh, Spielberg movie. So I was like, all right, cool. Went to go see it. Like, didn't know she was like afraid of spiders. Didn't know spiders was in it. Went to go see it. And like, she started <laughs> freaking the fuck out. I'm, I'm like, yo, what's happening? Like, I don't know what, what, what's going on. She's like, Octo. She won't even say spiders. She was saying like, Octo, Octo bug and shit. It was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> like, the super, super A holds a dear place in my heart just because, just because of that date. <laughs> LOL. Did you, well, did you guys, did you guys keep dating or was that like curtains? No, that was the first and last date. Oh, no. <laughs> it was a fun one, though. We were so cool. But, yeah, that, that was the first and the last date. Oh, well, we can't win them all. No. All right, Jim, I'm glad, I'm glad I was able to talk to you tonight on a Monday. Break the trend. Oh, yeah, like, su- super geeked about that. All right, thanks for listening. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. All right, take care. Uh, Matias, what's on your mind tonight? Hi, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Uh, hi. I I just wanted to say I love the episode. Um, I used to be a huge fan of Glenn, and now I'm much more ambivalent. But, you know, he's a very intelligent guy. Like you said, he only, you know, he's only driving me insane because he is very smart and can back up what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, something that I, I wanted to, to ask, because I think it's a good um, – angle for what bothers me and probably a lot of other people about Glenn sometimes mm-hmm. is when he says like, okay, the security state, the censorship of the security state is more significant than the censorship of in quotes, culture war issues. Right. Mm-hmm. And on, on its face, like I understand it's like, okay, here's the military industrial complex, the intelligence arm, you know, this is no la- like small thing, no laughing matter, but I also think, you know, the, the problem is what is a culture war issue? Mm-hmm. Who gets 100%. to decide what we take seriously? Mm-hmm. And I, I have to say, I think he was incredibly cavalier about that um, drag show law. Yeah. It's, it's like, okay, we're, we suddenly have a lot of faith in the federal court system. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I, don't I, know. Com- that is I completely agree. You know, because he said also, um, you know, I, but I brought, I don't know who brought it up, but the, the BDS loyalty oath laws, you know, you can't yeah. get a federal contract unless you say you will never support BDS. And when I, and when that came up, he was like, well, the courts have all overturned those. And I, like, I, I, I didn't know off the hand. I, I still don't know. I haven't, I didn't follow up and look if that's actually true. The last I had heard of it, they were on the books because Abby Martin was caught up in one of these things not that many years ago. But the idea, like, I agree with you that there's two main problems. One, that over-reliance on the courts when we know what they do and how increasingly capricious they are. And two, this the definition of what's a culture war issue and what's not culture war issue. Because I remember when abortion was being characterized as a culture war issue. And then it very yeah, quickly yeah. became a legal issue. And because of the court that we're all supposed to have so much faith in, Roe got overturned. Casey got overturned. And, you know, it it does not sit right with me. There's, there could be all kinds of, um, you know, security state efforts that end up getting overturned because they get exposed by something like the Twitter files. And you could say, well, that got corrected for because whistleblowers can make sure that they can't get away with murder. Okay. Well, that doesn't mean that you're not going to care about the security state overreach. And just because there might be some positive court outcomes with respect to so-called culture war issues doesn't mean that we're not currently looking at a world that is increasingly passing legislation to limit the ability for people who are from historically marginalized groups to live the way they want to live. Yeah. Also, yeah. are like our voting rights a culture war issue? Or, I mean, like I think that some of the legislation around um, voter disenfranchisement is it's not focusing on the kind of voter disenfranchisement that used to genuinely suppress the black vote in really meaningful ways. But like, just as a, as a matter of principle is voter disenfranchisement a culture war issue or a substantive issue? Yeah, I think that that really, and, and the abortion issue I was going to mention, because I, I also think that these are much harder to put into Glenn's dichotomy of oh, well, this is establishment versus anti-establishment. Like, who is the establishment and the anti-establishment with abortion? Um, I mean, you know, now, now it is more clear. But, you know, like with voting rights, I, I just don't think it falls so neatly as like um, – yeah, yeah, he was saying on the show. Sorry, I kind of – No, 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 I, I, yeah, totally. And, and, the, and the thing is the right is obviously – emphasizing these culture war things as well and 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 often they do it so that it's a distraction from some pretty substantive establishment um power plays that are suppressing people right so the idea that like the left is the one harping on the i'm not saying this is what glenn was saying but the kind of implication mm-hmm. that the left is the one bringing up culture war stuff and it's less important because i'm concerned let's say that there's a legislation to marginalize trans marginalize is too vague to make it illegal to be trans to make it illegal yeah, to yeah. be in drag not even trans like what yeah. am, am i even allowed to wear pants like i don't even understand what the law <laughs> what counts as drag when you're a woman in the the realm of what you're allowed to wear is so expansive but never mind you know, like uh, the sunset of the pantsuit, <laughs> you know, like can I wear pants if my hair is long, but not my hair is short. Like, what is the rule here, actually? So um, the point is, like, that, that, like, we're not the one like I didn't start that. I didn't come up with the legislation to say, you know, everyone has to wear drag. 
And and Glenn's point is that like there are people who will say it is um, abusing kids to prematurely, let's say, push um, uh, trans, um, what do you call it, gender affirming care on a kid. And there are people who will say it's mm-hmm. abuse to withhold gender affirming care from a kid, and that everyone should just stay out of it. But I'm like, I haven't. I haven't seen staying out of it means that the parent who wants to do gender affirming care can do gender affirming care. Like staying right, out of it right. means what the liberals want, not what the conservatives want. In terms yeah. of we're just talking straight up freedoms. And so I do think that the lines get really blurry there. And I think it is especially naive not to see that like all that Ron DeSantis is doing, all of the posturing that these folks populists are doing is to say, look over here at Disney world. So you don't notice that I'm deep, like a, I'm, I'm, um, defining social security you know i'm cutting social security right and, and right. that's the part like that i get frustrated with uh, sometimes with Clem when i listen to the show it's like like you are completely right about the top down of it all the inside outside of it all but without specifically calling out what the conservatives are doing you can very easily when saying get lead people to the implication that your critique of these culture war this culture war nonsense means that conservatives on the right and you're you're unintentionally validating their project. And this is my issue with Tulsi Gabbard as well. I said on the show, like, I don't like, I understand that if you're leaving the democratic party, it's not necessarily the time for you to be critiquing the Republican party because you have your beef with who you have your beef with. People have argued that I don't critique Republicans enough. And my feeling is, do you really need me to get on TV and say Trump is bad? Doesn't everybody know right, that Trump is right. bad? My audience knows that Trump is bad. My audience doesn't think I like Trump because I never any say anything positive about the guy. I mean, he was vaguely hilarious in retrospect, but you know, like that's uh, I mean, about it. Course. You know, but I don't think that every person, every, I think there was, there were degrees of how clear people's positions are on some of this stuff. I'll say that. And I think that when you yeah. push, when you make, when you ask for clarification, Glenn is very clear that he is not for Bolsonaro and that he's not for Trump and that he disagrees with Tucker on X, Y, and Z. And those things become clear, but you know, it's not always, it's not always the impression that one can get. Right. And I, I guess that was the other, the only other thing that I was thinking about here was really like, it does seem like there is, um, you know, the, the line between being tacitly in favor of some of these, uh, not good ideas and doing effective propaganda it's a very blurry line and it really does seem to come down to the way you emphasize things yeah and then that starts to feel petty right like i feel this when i'm talking to glenn because i do value what he does so much like i don't want to be sitting around nitpicking oh the words you used here weren't the words i would have used It, it makes me feel like it diminishes the body of his work in some way. But I also, I completely, look, I know what people, I know what people are saying when they make the critique of them. Like I'm not ignorant. Like I see what they see. And again, my emphasis would be different than his. And then someone else's emphasis would be different than mine. And they think that I'm basically the same as Glenn. And there's like a, there's like a gradation of people who choose a different kind of emphasis. Right. Right. And and I mean, I think, too, to an extent, it's important to have people that are like um, addressing all kinds of issues in their own way who are able to speak to different audiences because, you know, that's that's what solidarity is. Right. It's like we, we might not share all of our interests, but 
uh, you and I both want Medicare for all. So, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. And if Glenn, like, I don't, I don't know for sure. I don't, you know, I don't listen to anybody's show so sporadically, but if Glenn's talking about Medicare for all, and frankly, let's say Matt, uh, not Matt Taby, um, uh, what's his name? Um, Sam Cedar isn't mm-hmm. right. Like who, yeah. who actually is bringing up, bringing up Medicare for all more, uh, Jimmy Dore or AOC at this point? Like genuine question. Yeah. yeah, right. No, totally. I, I completely agree with you. There's a, a real bankruptcy of attention on, in quotes, the big issues uh, from the mainstream. You know, so people say what they want to say about Glenn, but at the end of the day, like I'm like going down the list of priorities and it's still check, check, check on all the big ticket items. Yeah, yeah. You know, no, I mean, he's he's smart and he's. He's right on quite a few things and, you know, on pretty much everything that matters. And, sa- and same with, like, Matt Taibbi. Matt Taibbi's never framed himself as, like, some big socialist. He's always been more like a, uh, I don't know, progressive, you know. He, and this isn't shade. This is how he self-describes. Like, he, he's not, like, some Marxist socialist type. He's just, like, a Bernie Democratic you know, not even a Democrat, social, social Democrat, yeah, I, whatever they call I it. I used to listen to uh, their podcast when it was on Rolling Stone mm-hmm. um, more frequently. And I remember hearing him like definitively distinguish himself from any left right. tag specifically. Right. And yet he was a Bernie supporter. He caught out all of the idiocy during the primary with these other candidates. Mm-hmm. You know, he, w- he was an ally for lack of a better word. And that to me was worth a lot more in my book than someone who I guess is uncontroversial and would never be called a right winger, like one of the pod save guys, but who goes out of their way to run cover for the democratic establishment. Yeah. You know, and so it's, it's not that I want to downplay any specific criticism that people have. Like I've heard the interviews and the clips and the segments that people have issues with. And I also have issues with them, but I don't jump from, Oh, I didn't like that. He said that to, I think he's a secret right winger because again, I'm just trying to yeah. figure it out. Like, okay, so is, is John Favreau a secret right winger? Cause he, in my, from my perspective, misrepresented what Kamala Harris's Medicare for all plan was and tried to sabotage Bernie. The, the answer is yes. He is. I mean, you know what I mean? But nobody will accuse me of being a secret conservative for going on pod save America. Right. Right. And I think, I think it does get like really gummed up when you start doing this, like, you know, weighing everyone's heart against the feather because, uh, you know, what if, if someone is right on all of the issues, if they're saying and I suppose doing all the right things. Right. Um, what does it matter? What, you know, in their heart of hearts, are they really, you know, whatever? Yeah. Uh, but but that's all. That's all I wanted to uh, call in about. So. All right. Well, it's good talking uh, to you. Matthews. So all right. Keep you too. Eat. All right, Jonathan, it's been a while. What's on your mind tonight? Jonathan? Jonathan, I see you're unmuted. I know you're no novice to this, but we cannot hear you. Can you hear me now? All right, Jonathan, loud and clear. What's on your mind tonight? Well, I was sitting here trying to think about how to talk about the problem with... um, 
Robbie and Glenn Greenwald. And all I could think about was the conversation I had with the real Jonathan about Stoller the other day. And it, but it's the same problem. <laughs> Not the, the real Jonathan. <laughs> about, yeah, the real Jonathan. Because <laughs> okay. he, he was playing on his show. He was playing the Stoller interview and it was like just getting on my nerves because the problem with all three of them is this. Remember what Samantha Beast said about libertarians that you, he's like, my problem is I agree with every other thing that they say. That's, you know, my Did problem. Did she say that? And, yeah. Yes. Remember Samantha B? You right. Remember. No, I remember Samantha B. I fucking. Yeah. She had her own Samantha show. Yeah, yeah. Well, she had her own show for a little while. I guess it didn't last. So a lot of people probably can't stand Samantha B. No, I remember her and I, it sucked. And she spent like an entire episode, like two weeks before the 2016 general election, griping about how Jill Stein was horrible because she. <laughs> was like in a folk band and like, I don't know, didn't flush the toilet or something. And instead of talking about maybe pressuring Hillary Clinton to have some accountability over why she was getting so roundly critiqued and why she was detested or even spending the hour talking about how Trump was bad, but no, that's how she chose to use her programming. And then for the next, however many months or years she was on the air after that griping about how it was all Jill Stein's fault that Hillary Clinton lost. Well, Never I made mind. it through about two episodes, and so I, I gave her her uh, two acres. Her two broken clock was right twice a day. But this is the thing <laughs> I thought about was this is I, I liked that line anyways. A problem is that I agree with every other thing that I say. And so I did a, a metaphor once about building a boat one piece at a time. You got all these really high quality parts, but they don't fit together. And Stoller made almost that same point. He's like, you got to zoom out. And a look at about how the pieces fit together before you start making decisions in a vacuum. I was like, yes, yes, that's right. But the problem with Stoller isn't that that's wrong. It's that his his blueprint of what that thing is supposed to look like isn't any good. Mm. You know, he's in there. He, I don't like the word red flag anymore because it makes it sound like a thing is a deal breaker. But it really just I want it to mean warrants closer examination. So how about orange flag? He might use a word like mm. revenue. Mm. You know what I mean? Like. You think you need to raise money to pay for things. It's all made up. Laws are made up. Money's made up. It's not revenue. It's destruction. And, and he's talking about things like the GDP. It's like, oh, what percentage of the GDP is uh, Medicare for all going to be? I'm like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. The GDP, even if the GDP was a meaningful metric, which it's not, like China builds whole cities that no one lives in, and that boosts their GDP up. But even if it was meaningful, think about it. You got If it's a very small percentage of GDP, then you can afford it and it's a very large percentage of GDP, then that means the cost of healthcare is so exploitative, so monopolized, so cost prohibitive that you can't afford not to do it. Mm-hmm. Like w- what he thinks money is and where it comes from is just all backwards. Like, so his, his, his macro, he's the one talking about, look, you gotta look at the macro. I'm like, yeah, but your macro is no good. Like you say things that make sense, but your version of what the world looks like is just like off. Mm-hmm. just a little bit off and that's greenwald's problem too it's not like he's stupid it's not like robbie's stupid exactly you know you remember the time he said about venezuela he's like oh it's the economic it's the economic system it was the first and only thing he would seek to blame about venezuela's problems but you know when you have the same problem in america he would he wouldn't only not do it first he would never think to include the economic system as a, as a, even on the list of things to blame for the exact same problem, right? Mm. So he's not, he's not 
he's smart, but he's not a thinker. You know what I mean? Because a thinker would have thought of that. They're 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 narrow in an ideology well, look, I, where there's this, honestly, I just think that people are so programmed. I mean, and that sounds yes. a little patronizing. I don't mean it that way, but like we're all brought up. We we're taught ideology that is capitalism yes. is what it is to be America. That it's a virtue as opposed to just a neutral economic system that there's no better alternatives. The word communists is taught like it's a slur. It, it, people, I have conversations with people who aren't really political and aren't even really trying to like make digs at the left or anything, just talking about communist China, this and communist that. And, you know, it's just the, we're, we're brought up in this kind of stuff like the water, like the air we breathe. So I think that it's very difficult. People don't see our economic system because it's like, it's like a fish in water. We don't, they yes, don't even, and, and it doesn't even occur I, to them. Yeah. That's Go why ahead. I don't have any problem talking about it all the time. You know who else talked about the same thing every day? Those people in the movie don't look up. Oh, you got to talk about the same thing every day, Jonathan. Yeah, I do. You know what mm-hmm. Jennifer Lawrence's reaction was that to that criticism? It's like, what's wrong with you people? You know, mm-hmm. like, like the, my only problem with that movie was that it's a little bit too on point with the uh, environmentalism metaphor, whereas economically speaking, I'm not just telling you that the sky is falling. I'm telling you it, it's fallen and you don't even realize it. Even Venezuela. Remember the interview with uh, Don Zagur about Venezuela? And then you, you were fighting with somebody on call-in about Venezuela and Marianne Williamson or somebody like that. And I was sort of chuckling because if you just replace, he's like, oh, my thing is foreign policy. But if you just replace foreign policy with monetary policy, and Marianne Williamson with the squad, we had almost the same fight, right? But there are things which which supervene on other things. There are things that have causal primacy over other things. And the only reason the Venezuela Donziger situation even exists in the first place is because of how well protected that wealth is once it hits the asset portfolios of the people the wealthy in the united states of america like the absence of a wealth tax and the upward mobilization of wealth that is the fallout of the fed are all primal like causally primal to environmentalism to foreign policy all these things are subsidiary they're, they're after effects to the economic system to the monetary system so i will talk about the monetary system every single day because it's just things happen because of other things. And maybe they would go into Venezuela and try to get oil, but would it be so would it be so smash and grab, you know, exploitative, have no lasting relationships with the indigenous people? It wouldn't be quite like that if it wasn't if they didn't if if it wasn't like, oh, why worry about the long-term profits when we have more to gain from the asset appreciation of hoarding as much as possible. So it's everything is money basically. And that's what Sean said the other day is everything is money. I'm like, yeah, everything is money. And they don't see that. And even the guy who says he sees that, who's Mark Stoller, doesn't really see it. He's got a very superficial understanding of the monetary system. And it's evident in his orange flag words that trigger me, like revenue and GDP. I'm like, you don't get it, man. You don't get it. Yeah, well, look, sometimes I think that my generalized ignorance about such things um, creates a lack of orthodoxy or lack of dogma that makes me maybe more porous to different kinds of ideas in a way that's ultimately constructive. And I don't say that to, like, maybe I'm just dumb, whatever. But I don't say that to lord it over anybody. 
But I do sometimes, I, I have some empathy for, like, if I, you know, were some tax lawyer, if I were, you know, an actual corporate lawyer who was good at her job instead of someone who just did it for a few years. Like, if I, if I were a antitrust expert like Matt Stoller, if I had been really trained in some more traditional discipline and had never, you know, like, got a lot of kind of my, the, my lens for understanding the world and critiquing much of the world was through this one discipline, would it be more difficult for me to shake those ideological priors and realize that as useful as this discipline might be as a tool for understanding the world that it has its limits? I think that's perfectly possible. And maybe some of what Matt Stoller was doing with, dealing with because you know, his field, the antitrust of it all, is like so important and I think is very adjacent to so many of the critiques of capital that people on the left make. It's, it's, it's like very adjacent without necessarily leading you to the same bigger conclusions. And again, as we were talking about a little bit before, I think with Jam, sometimes it's the people that are most closest, most close to you that it's difficult to um, argue with. <laughs> Cause if you're like yeah. almost there. Antitrust is the reason I went to caucus for Elizabeth Warren, because I like that's, Monopoly is about the worst thing. It's it's not even being good at, even if you're a capitalist, you should hate Monopoly. You know, like all good arguments for capitalism hinge on competition, right? Don't they? So you should hate Monopoly. But even, even antitrust is like, if you have a law, a law is evidence of a problem. You can eliminate the need for antitrust legislation by just having the government compete directly with the monopolist by providing whatever it is they're monopolizing. Now you're going to use fiscal policy instead of antitrust. Every law should exist with like two things, an expiration date and a policy that is in place and active to remove the need for that law. I would have no killing ceremonially revisited every hundred years just to drive that point home. Like if you have a law, you have a problem. What are you doing about it? You mm. know, it's a laws are necessarily, they're a little bit immoral in the same way that borders are immoral because you draw a line mm -hmm. and somebody's going to get punished for having just one toe on the wrong side of that line. You mm -hmm. know, it, it comes down unevenly, but that's, yeah. you know, universal basic services. What are you, oh, you're talking about the same thing. Who are you trying to convince Jonathan? But I know I talk about the same thing every day, but it's like, I've never had a problem getting people on board with good ideas. Wealth tax, land value tax, universal basic services top-down and bottom-up solutions, respectively. My problem is getting people off-board with everything else. It all seems very important, and it is, but it's not, doesn't have the causal primacy that money has. Yeah. No, I think that, I think you're making good points tonight, Jonathan. I agree. Look, maybe it's time to get uh, Matt Stoller back on another episode, and maybe you should come on with him. I have one of these okay. on Bad Faith Pod, Jonathan. Sure. <laughs> and I agree with the other Jonathan that there's no real or fake Jonathan's. All Jonathan's are legitimate Jonathan's, and I appreciate well, you calling I, in tonight. I agree with other Jonathan on 75, 85% of this stuff. It's just like minor little points about whether central bank reserves are really necessary or, you know, yield curve inversion having long-term effects on something, something. You know what I mean? Like, it's minor technical stuff, but we agree on universal basic services, you know, tax reforms, like most of the major stuff is we agree on. Yeah, I hear that, Jonathan. Well, look, thanks again for calling in tonight. Yeah, thanks. Keep All right, faith. keep the faith. All right, Ende, what's in your mind tonight? Hello. Loud and clear. All right. Hi, Bree. It's been a while. Um, it has been a while. 
I've been off Twitter since the midterms. It's beautiful. Wow. <laughs> I have not been keeping track, like almost at all. Like I see, I still watch like your segments on Rise uh, on Rising, and like you know, I'll look at the headlines. But I'm very much like not into the day to day of politics as I was like right before the midterms. I'm jealous. Have you been spending a lot of time? Um hanging out in the crypt where you're calling in from right now, or perhaps you're standing inside of a hydrogen collider. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I'm in a hallway. I'm in a hallway. I stepped out. Is this better? Is this better? It's fine. Like we can hear you either way. It's just funny. You sound like your Alice falling down the hole. Maybe I literally stepped, I still, I literally stepped into like a different, like a hall, like a large hall so that I can talk with the other people being like around me because I'm at work, but you know, it's chill. Right? No, no, it's cool. It just sounds like you're descending into the underworld to get you rid of Seaback. <laughs> like, any number of things could be happening. Okay. <laughs> so, I'm still waiting for my, I'm still waiting for my, um, zoning episode. <laughs> um, Your zoning that's... episode? Oh, let me write that down. You're right. I was supposed to do a zoning episode. Let me get it together. Did you, did you give me a guest for that, by the way? Did I give you a guess? Uh, yeah, did you suggest a guess? I, I think I might have mentioned um, what's his name? Uh, no opinion. The the, yes. the yeah, the neoliberal guy. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um. So and then also you had given you had assigned me like a reading to do like a while ago, right? And I, I, I did. I assigned you a reading. Yes, you did because we, we had like a we had like a conversation. You're like, you should read this book called How to Be a Socialist. Right? I think that's what it was called. Oh, Nathan's think, book. Yeah. So, yeah, I wanted to know which author, because I typed it into, like, Amazon, and I'm like, I don't know, I don't know which one of these books it actually is. So, it's How to Be a Socialist. It's Nathan Robinson's book. Uh, no, I think it's actually called something more along the lines of Why You Should Be a Socialist. Let me see. It's on my shelf. Uh, oh, I think it's turned the other way. I'm looking at it, but the bind, uh, the spine is not facing it's like why you should be a social. It's by Nathan Robinson. Okay, That's I should be able to find it. And um, so recently, I've been. I just started a book with my friend, right? And I think it's called Socialist Reconstruction. And um, he's more of like a like a traditional socialist, like international socialist. Like he identifies. He's in like actual groups or whatever. And I, you know, like I, I'm not officially i don't even officially like identify as a socialist because like a lot of my experience in politics is um like you know testing out whether or not i want this label on me right and i mean i don't know how useful that is but you know i think it's kind of i think my main struggles like um were kind of touched on in the last caller where, like, you know, you basically said that, like, Max Ivey doesn't necessarily identify as a socialist, and yet, and yet, you know, you have a lot of, you seem to have a lot of respect for him. And you, like, just spoke about how, um, you know, because you aren't, you weren't traditionally um, in a certain field, like, you know, like, you weren't, you're not an antitrust specialist, you don't necessarily approach those types of issues or MMT with any type of, like, dogma, right? Mm-hmm. And when I, when I was reading it, so far, we've only just gotten through the introduction of the book. And, like, the way that, and this is sort of, um, 
in, I don't, is the word indicative? Like, this this kind of gives me the same vibe as, like, a lot of the other things I hear from people who, like, you know, claim to be socialists. It, it It's well represented in the introduction of the book, and I have a lot of problems where um, the definition of capitalism and socialism, like, it's never, like, a clearly made-out thing, right? And it's, like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, let me get my thoughts. So, one of my problems with the way that socialism is often described and the way that capitalism is often described, it gives me a very, like, religious vibes. Like, the same, in the same way that you could never, you could never, um, like, you can't really get someone who's like a devout Christian to explain when something is an act of God versus an act of the, of the devil, right? For instance, right? And you can't you can't get them to pin down like some sort of objective logic so as to when this is this thing and when this is another thing. Is I felt I felt the same way about how the book talk, spoke about capitalism and socialism. Whereas when things are when when we like how things are going, it's socialism. When we don't like how things are going, it's capitalism. I see the same thing happening on with people who identify as capitalists. When we don't like how things are going, we blame socialism. When we do like how things are going, we blame we attribute it to capitalism. And I feel like there's a lot of there's a lot of built into that on the socialist side. Well, let's start with the capitalist side. On the capitalist side, there's this sort of um, sentiment where like the free market or the design of our current market has been ordained by God for some reason. I don't know why, but God made it so that um, you know interest rates are this this number or like you know um, we only we only finance um, private private banks you know things like that instead of worker co-ops. Like for some reason that's been ordained by God, right? But but except for the places, except for the places where we don't think so. So like, for instance, for instance, like they might not, they want the taxes to be lower or whatever. For some reason, the tax rate being at this level, that, that has not been ordained by God. But the reason why wages are this at so low, that has, you know what I mean? Um, I don't want to ramble, so stop me whenever you have something to contribute. Well, I guess I, I don't understand. Can you give an example of where you think that someone who is a socialist miss? you know, misattributed something to capitalism when it was actually socialism that was the problem? Um, well, uh, you'd have to design, define socialism, but to the extent that, to the extent that, um, that regulations, right, we, we had this conversation before, uh, to the extent that you might believe that a community-centered regulations, right, um, well, regulations uh, aren't socialism. Well, co- community center. So, like, a I, directly in the book and through my friend, like, kind of, you, you get the vibe that a a community, a specific community, um, having opinions or deciding how things are run within that community is socialism, or that is a aspect of socialism that socialists take pride in, right? That okay. is more more democratic control over the way your own more community is run control, instead of top down control within the community specifically. And for instance, that is that, that that's basically the whole zoning argument that the reason why things are so expensive, why things can't get built, are because of like of like usually wealthy but communities having 
having, um, you know, like strong say over how the community is run, building heights, Wait a minute. How, how much parking well, you need, wealthy, et cetera, et cetera. Wealthy people exerting their will over a community, but the, it can also opposite be, it can of also a community be, democratically deciding something. But it could also be like it very is it very it's very often also like poor communities as long as you're as long as long as you live in the community already right so if, if so that's also that's also part of it you it's hard to tell whether or not the reason why the people don't want don't want um don't want things being okay, let, let me just stop you let me just stop you mm-hmm. we're talking. When we're talking about socialism, we're talking about economic systems and people owning, having more control over the material reality. So we're talking about workers having more control over the, and again, I'm sorry, you guys, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be talking to anybody about socialism. I'm not the one. I haven't read the books. These are vibes coming from me. So other commenters can feel free in the comments to step in and correct me when I pull you up to this. You see, I love, I love I, your definition. I love your definition. Of social, like, it's like, not my definition. The whole point, as I understand it, again, sorry to the Jonathans and everybody who knows better than me, is that it's a materialist analysis, meaning like we are talking about the, 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 the actual cognizable, tangible fruits of people's labor and how much the people who are creating the profits are able to reap from what how they've actually worked. And the fact of the matter is that even though we have certain amount of democracy in our political space, and that seems to be what you were talking about, right? There are more or less, I mean, we have, we have a technical kind of, a, oh, I guess we technically don't have a democracy, but we have something that is supposed to mean that every individual has one vote and have a say over how their community is run. That is perverted in various ways where and realistically, people don't have the time to be civically engaged. People with more money are more able to be civically engaged. People can buy their way into electoral positions where they have the influence. We don't have a direct democracy, so we're electing people who then make decisions for us, and those people can be captured. All of the problems that exist with, with democracy, right? But when we're talking about socialism, we're often more focused on the ways in which our workplace could be more democratic because – while we have some rules in the political sphere and an understanding as a country about how we like we kind of believe in democracy, whatever that means, we have absolutely no expectations in our workplace that workers should have any say whatsoever. Instead, because we have a capitalist country, we simply believe that the people who have the capital, the people who had the money somehow, we never interrogate why some people just start out with money and other people don't, but the people who have all of the money get to make all the decisions about how much people get paid, whether you get fired, whether your job gets moved overseas, whether or not a bunch of you get fired just so that someone can be paid a stock, you know, a dividend and investors can make money and all of these kinds of things. And that is the root of so much unfairness that trickles into the inequities in our political democracy, right? Because so much of that is rooted in people being economically disenfranchised. So when we're talking, when I, when I'm talking about socialism, when I'm thinking about socialism, it's just thinking about the fact that we get to decide how our society is structured and right now we've decided to structure it to, to say that what matters most is how much money you started with, and that should give you all the power to make the decisions in the workplace, and that that's not fair, and that the, what should give you power in a workplace is how much, one, how much you actually work and contribute to labor, and also the fact that you're a human being in society that should have, should have some baseline level of support and care because you're alive and you're a human and we value you. And, and I, you don't and have I, to agree with that, that I, but that's I, I, where I'm coming from. I love, I love that 
explanation, right? And I, I have to say that the reason why, like, I, I'm spending so much time interrogating this is because a lot of the times, like, I'm not, I'm not getting that same explanation. What you're espousing right now, I'm mm-hmm. getting much more specific, much more, like, grandiose, um, I don't want to say grandiose, but, like, much more, uh, like, for instance, abolishing private property. Whether or not you actually believe in that, whether or not I actually believe in that, that's the type of things that I'm getting, that's what socialism means, period, full stop. Like, from what I'm reading from other people who, who say that they're socialists, like, it's, it's those types of, those types of um, statements that, like, that prevent me from fully saying I identify this thing, especially when, like, most of the reading materials or most of the people who, like, you know, are using all the words, like, using all of the, um, invoking, like, marks or whatever, like, I feel like those people have a, a, a much better claim or of, of explaining what socialism is than me because I haven't done the reading, you know? So, like, so if those people are telling me socialism is to apply Marxism to all aspects of life, for, for instance, right? Like, I can't, I can't necessarily vibe with that if I see an instance in where Marx should not be applied, if you get what I'm saying. And so if we're going with how you're defining it, like, I would clearly be a socialist uh, according to my own values. But mm-hmm. when it comes to, but when we're going with, for instance, like my friend, like he's a part of all of the groups, right? And he, the, the socialism that he was espousing, like it, it, it didn't really make sense. It was sort of social, uh, it was sort of um, circular logic, the things that he was saying when my response is towards them. And so like that was really what was preventing me from like, you know, being on his side in whatever argument we were having that day. So, um, I guess, yeah, so I basically said my piece, um, and I also don't understand why it is necessarily that, that socialism, I think maybe you've spoken about this before, but if, if, if it's the fact, if it's the case that socialism or the, the politics of today or the philosophy um, that exists on the broad of today does not necessarily gel with the historical movements of socialism, right, in some, in some way, why it is that they haven't changed the name, right? Because, so look, because, look, look, yeah. let, let, let me just stop you. I, I think that the issue here is that there are some misunderstandings here, and it's not your fault. I think stuff is confusing, and I think there can be a dogmatic approach that some folks take that means they don't stop and under, and explain, and I have been alienated by some of this lingo, too, not in principle, but just the approach that people take and how dense it all seems. And so I, 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 but I do think that what's going on here is some misunderstanding. So I think that several people in the chat have noted that there's a difference, for instance, between personal property and private property. And so it's not that someone's going to come for your personal effects, your photo albums or the glassware that you bought at the antique shop or your favorite lamp or your clothes or anything like that, but that we're talking about the, you know, land capital, the capital that forms the basis of production. The idea, you know how I started out saying like, why is it that people with all the capital get to make all the decisions? Like, look at America. Where, you know, where did so much of this capital come from? It came from people who were already rich in Europe, people who engaged in the slave trade, people who got in on the ground floor when other people didn't have the opportunities to make capital, uh, to make money. And why is it, how is that fair? You know, what, on some level, like, isn't there something inherently unfair that all these people are starting off at a different place? And are expected to have 
equal opportunity and outcomes in this world that that rewards having capital in the first instance, right? So this idea of how do we get at that fundamental problem? If some people are having so much and other people are having so little and having to scrap in the same system. So it's so again, the, the misunderstandings like that, people thinking that socialism means that everyone has to walk around in a burlap sack in brutalist buildings, eating gruel out of matching tin cups and all of that. Like we you, you got we we have to be do a better job, I think, as socialists to explain that that's not the case. But also, if you're genuinely interested in what it means to be socialist, I think that you got to explore that as well. And that, I guess that's why I don't 100% remember our earlier conversation. But now that we're talking, I'm seeing why I recommended why you should be a socialist. Because I do think that Nathan writes about these things in a relatively approachable – oh, I just saw it on my shelf. There it is. In a relatively approachable way that uses really common sense examples and stays away from, like, quoting marks at you. Um, but reasons from general principles and like ethics and morals in a way that I think will really resonate with you. So go ahead and read it. it it's also a really easy read. He's a very, I find him to be a very compelling writer. Um, easy, easy to consume. Chuck it down like a soda. And then come back and I think we're all, we'd all be really curious to see what you think about it once you've read it or at least read a part of it. I really wanted to read it before, like speaking to you again after so long, but I, I literally could not remember like the exact title and the exact author. No, it's okay. Also, I hate giving homework. You know, you guys know I don't like to read books, so I'm, I'm really, another thing you could do, by the way, I interviewed him about his book on the, on the Bernie podcast. So you might start by just listening to that episode if that's a shorter way to do it. It's a, it's a. The Bernie podcast. So, how, what so the Bernie podcast was called Hear the Burn, and all of those episodes are still up on the internet on on the Bernie YouTube. So if you Google Hear the Burn and Nathan Robinson, um, I think he only came on the once, and it was to talk about his book. Okay, all right, thank you. And I'm I'm sure he's given interviews about it elsewhere on the Current Affairs podcast, etc. But oftentimes, like if I'm <laughs> if I'm interviewing a guest and I don't have time to read their book. I'll just go listen to them talk about their book on another podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> you can try that. <laughs> right. Thank you, Bree. Yeah, of course. Good luck. Keep the faith. All right. Shelly, what's on your mind tonight? Hey, Bree. How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing good. I just wanted to shout out real fast. Um, I both saw Hogness and BK420 in line and they were waiting along for a little while and then they accidentally auto booted themselves. Um, Hogness was either before or after jaw and BK 420 was after Jonathan, real Jonathan. All right. Duly noted. Thank you, Shelly. Yeah, no problem. <clears throat> um, okay. So as far as the whole Glenn thing and, and cause I, I'm trying to take this back to the Twitter files and the whole free speech thing mm -hmm. and all that stuff. I think one of the reasons why Glenn can kind of irritate me in a way is because he does seem very much to stay in his lane regarding culture wars. Now he might say something, he might like go against the Russiagate narrative or anything like that, but that's really when he's more talking, it's more in reference to like domestic political issues and just him not liking news being reported incorrectly but not necessarily because he has an overall foreign policy lens. Do you see what I'm saying? When you, when you say stay in his lane with um, culture issues, help me understand what you mean. Well, because I constantly see him talking about, I mean, as far as like the free speech thing, I mean, I would kind of consider that a domestic issue. Like almost no other country has the same kind of, 
you know, view of free speech that we have here. So it is kind of like an internal discussion. I don't really ever see him drifting into having any like bigger takes um, on that type of stuff. And I would, and I would honestly have to say that Matt Taibbi kind of seems the same way to me. Um, you know, yeah, sure. He supports Bernie or, you know, and, and he does good work and he's a good journalist and all that stuff, but he, do, he just doesn't really, the bona fides aren't foreign policy. And so I feel like that's kind of the whole game with sort of the Twitter wars because Elon Musk is a defense contractor. I mean, of course he would select journalists that have a very domestically focused view on whatever the, the censorship issue. I don't know. So that's interesting. Do I think of Glenn Greenwald as having a domestic folk? Well, Glenn Greenwald wasn't chosen for a Twitter file. So. Right, 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 right. But I'm saying like to, to link it back to it, like the reason why he'll be like, oh, well, I, I'm not necessarily, because honestly, I would have to say if you were to really do a deep dive into which leftists get censored the most, mm -hmm. it's going to be your anti-war leftists. It's going to be your leftists that have that foreign policy view. And because that's not really the area that people like Glenn and Matt Taibbi are, are, have their main focus, then they just don't see But wait a minute. I, I guess I, I do think of Glenn as being a foreign policy guy. I think of Glenn as being an Iraq war guy. That was like mm. his whole thing at the beginning of yeah. his career. I mean, not the beginning of his career, but the beginning of his journalism career. Um, and if anything, I think, I think I would read it as Glenn cares a lot about censorship mm -hmm. in part because he is a foreign policy guy who knows what it was like to not only do that reporting, but to do all of the, um, you know, covers, you know, do be the, be the vessel for leakers you know, who are, who are international people who are in, privy to America's malfeasance overseas and leaking documents to that end. And he's the, the conduit for that, like direct deep state criticism, which is inherently international. In yeah. nature. So I, I don't know. I, I, I see there as being a kind of consistent relationship between his interest in free speech issues and his track record of reporting on internet on foreign policy i'm going to call it foreign po yeah foreign policy issues mm -hmm. and i guess i'm not quite uh, well i guess i would have to say the... like for example like yeah sure he's uh and and i agree he does good work whenever he talks about that stuff but mostly it's about you know the the censorship and the i would say authoritarian nature of our own government that is against free speech that causes him to speak out against the iraq war that causes him to champion people like Chelsea Manning. It, it is essentially the civil libertarian in him and his belief in the American version of free speech and what all that entails and is holding that up as moral, like the moral high ground. And that's kind of where some of that stuff goes. And because he knows that you know, the CIA, the FBI and all that other type of stuff will go against people's civil rights, that's kind of more what he's focused on not necessarily um, hands off this other country. Sometimes because of the nature of those leaks, then he kind of delves into some of those realms, I would say. But um, because he wasn't one of the people that was in the Twitter files, I'm just saying Matt Taibbi, I would say that is the case for him. You know, I'm trying to think of most of the books that I know, but he took the Wall Street financial crisis. 
um, hate ink. That's, yeah. I mean, like I, I'm trying to think of what his, um, you know, his big stuff where he really delves into foreign policy, you know? I, I guess I'm J- still trying to understand. So what's, what's the claim here? What's the well, argument? I'm saying, I'm saying that because, um, these journalists are more focused on kind of like domestic issues and sort of the free speech stuff and they're and they're against censorship, then they focus on what happens internally in the country. So they're therefore the focus on that type of stuff. And if you really wanted to find the left voices that were censored, then you would perhaps um, run files on the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, ASPI, which has partnered with Twitter to be a fact checker against China, for example, and they are directly funded by our government and Lockheed Martin and all mm-hmm. those other types of stuff, and they've partnered with them. But but they're not focused on that. They're focused on what did the Democratic Party do? What did the Republican Party do? What did the Biden administration do? What did the Trump administration do? Internal, internal. You see what I'm saying? Okay, so, so I think, so, okay. I do think that, I haven't really looked at Lee's Twitter files from today, but his first Twitter file drop did seem to be very foreign policy oriented for what it's worth. It was mm-hmm. all about the FBI, CIA, I guess the CIA coordinating with um, Twitter to have fake accounts pretending to be random people in Middle Eastern countries championing regime change in Twitter, uh, obscuring the extent to which they were actually state-run count accounts and all of that, making sure that they were boosted and not flagged as bots and all of that. There was more yeah. to it too, but. You know. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, probably in relation to like the Arab spring and like sort of all that type of stuff that is like directly responsive, responsible for color regime change operations. And so I don't know. I, and like I said to, to Glenn, I think it's perfectly reasonable for someone to want to focus on COVID censor, COVID-related censorship or mm-hmm. Hunter Biden-related censorship. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say this thing is what someone must look at versus this other thing. Right. I I just wish that to the extent that people have different priorities, like I'd have never heard of this Australian gr- group that you're bringing up. Sounds interesting. I think a lot of people probably just haven't heard of it. And that's the beauty of having more diverse people who have access to the files that people can look for different things and bring their expertise to bear. I think Lee Lee has always had a very specific focus as a journalist. And it was, you know, I, I enjoyed his Twitter files because his choice of what to research and what documents to request seemed in line with his area of expertise. And I can imagine any number of people who would bring that, I don't know, more expansive lens to this project. But I guess I don't yeah. know. I, 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 I guess I see that as something separate and apart from a critique of the actual people involved. Like if, if Matt Taibbi wants to focus on domestic things, no. I guess that doesn't really bother me it's per a, se. It's a critique of Elon Musk. Elon, Elon Musk, because he only, be, because he doesn't want to be associated with his defense contractor and all the shit that he's doing to help the deep state, then he's not going to seek out journalists that will be interested in covering that. Well, how do you explain, 
how do you explain um, Lee's access then? Well, I can't. I mean, I'm talking about all of the journalists and Lee came out with one, you know. I mean, he's, he's I done mean, two now, but I, I guess there's only, what, like five or six people. Mm-hmm. Schellenberger, Lee, Taibbi, Barry, I think one more. Right? And, and yeah, and most of the stuff is driven around... I mean, what the political parties are doing, which I think most of like most of the lefties from your audience kind of all know they're all liberals and they're all in the same party anyway. And so it, it just seems to me like it's just a drive to have more division and to kind of put people back into the same two parties. Like, oh, well, I can't you know, did you see what that dirty thing that the Democrats did? I guess I'm going to have to vote Republican now. Yeah, I think, I think that that is, I mean, yeah, this is, I mean, this is what we talked about on the podcast. I think that Elon and people are participating in it tacitly, like implicitly are helping Elon to create a narrative that says that the whole world is out to defeat Republicans and Democrats are all in a cabal and are in line with all the tech industry to defeat the right. Mm-hmm. And that the right are the virtuous ones who are getting suppressed. But, and, you know, and I think that's, that's all true. I guess I'm just struggling with, I'm struggling with the, the domestic versus foreign policy of it all. I mean, I'm just saying, I feel like most of the people that like there are plenty of journalists that might have like criticisms of kind of like the you know like our intelligence um agencies in relation to what they do domestically but their focus isn't always on what it is that they do foreign policy wise now yeah sure it, it'll bleed into it every now and then but part of the reason why i think elon musk wouldn't you know want aaron mate or max blumenthal on the team is because they're suppressed enough to where he might, but probably doesn't even know who they are. So well, you would have, you know, I mean. Look, Aaron Monte is literally filling in for Matt Taibbi on his own podcast. Useful idiots right now, right? I don't, I, I think there's a, look, I don't know what, if Aaron Monte is interested, if his name has been put forward, what the process is, if who gets to do a Twitter file. I mean, Glenn seemed to suggest that he hadn't really been asked um, but that he wouldn't do it if he were asked because he doesn't want to leave Brazil um, because his husband is ill, you know, mm. and I don't know if other people, maybe Aaron doesn't want to fly to San Francisco. Although I think Aaron is in California right now, co-hosting for Jimmy Dore. Yeah. Like, I, so I don't, I mean, I just, there's a lot of unknowns. I, I would love it if Aaron, I would fucking love it if Aaron did a Twitter drop. But I, I guess I'm not at this juncture. I'm not entirely, I don't know that. I mean, I have no interest in covering for Elon Musk here, but I, I don't know that it's necessarily fair to say he doesn't want Aaron to do it. I think I, I was pleasantly surprised when Lee's drop came, what, 10 days ago or whatever. I didn't expect that. So who know? I mean, I just kind of feel like who knows what's next. Yeah. I, I also don't think that Elon is that um, smart or forward yeah. thinking and that he might like accidentally <laughs> let Aaron or somebody do it that gets Elon into trouble. Because he just doesn't seem like this is very organized or, or thought out at all, to be honest. Yeah. Well, did you see the – did you watch um, – the Gray Zone did have Matt Taibbi on and Max and Aaron interviewed mm-hmm. him. 
And at least the good part about them interviewing him is they, it's Max at least kind of put forward the stuff about like Eritrea and how uh, Twitter like suppressed the hashtag of no more, mm. you know, because with their fight against the TPL. And Matt went, oh, that sounds interesting and wrote it down. And yeah, like, that's oh, what I'm okay, saying. Like, look I it. just don't. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't. I think that people just don't know. This is what I was saying about you brought up that Australian example. I don't think it's like nefarious. I guess is what I'm right. pushing that's, back. That's against. not what I'm claiming about it. Anyway, that's not what I'm claiming. I'm saying just because they just have a more domestic focus. That, yeah, it's not that they wouldn't find it interesting or they wouldn't look it up. It's just that because they are kind of more focused on either civil liberties which is going to be a domestic issue, an internal mm-hmm. issue, or and things like that, that they tend to have blinders on when it comes to where I think you would find the largest censorship towards the left, which would be the anti-war left. Yeah, That's all I'm saying. I get it's what not, you're saying. Yeah, it's, yeah, like it's, that, not, it's not nefarious. Yeah, I get what you're saying. That's all to say that, you know, yeah, I, I, I agree. I, this is why I think that the Twitter files should be opened up to more people. Yeah. It's and, and obvious to me that we're getting a very small, like, Twitter has existed since 2009, 8, yeah. whatever it was. That's, like, almost 20 years of documents, of emails. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, if I learned one thing from being a lawyer that document re, document review you'll have a dozen attorneys working billing eight hours a day of just reviewing documents for like one company for like a five-year period and they can do it for months or years because that's how many emails there are and the idea that like five dude like five journalists and barry sorry five people are in the position of being responsible for this huge cash. It's just, it's crazy to me. Like, it's not, it's not anybody's fault. It's just so obviously cherry picking. It's, it's an insane, it's insane to me. And that's what I'm talking about. It, it like, to me, it, it, it is, it's absolute cherry picking. And it's, and, and that is kind of the thing that like, where Glenn will kind of be like, oh, I just think it's more recent. Or I just think it's that, or I just think it's that. And it's just, just like, I promise you the biggest scandals that would ever come from the Twitter files is not what the government does here, but what the government does overseas. And I, it, it's just really a shame that there, that there isn't, that someone that kind of had more of that focus wasn't like, didn't just somehow trip onto the team. Because like, I, I, I really do hope that like Matt takes that suggestion and like looks it up. But that just happened to be like one of the suggestions that Max Blumenthal made. And like, if you really wanted to think about it, you could probably think about 40 of them, you know? Yeah, well, I'm sure, like, I'm sure, I hope there are, they remain in contact. And I hope that Matt, because apparently Lee got brought in because somebody else, maybe Matt recommended him. So yeah. if that's the case, I hope that Matt continue, like maybe recommends Aaron or Max Blumenthal. And yeah. I think we'd all be better off for it. And Glenn, I, think- I mean, I mean, I know that Glenn, you know, can't travel and maybe he has his hands full, I'm sure. But hey, like maybe someone else does some of the doc review and passes on some choice docs to Glenn and he can write it up or do some analysis because these are all people that I'd love to see in the mix. Chris Hedges, get him mm-hmm. in there. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are just I, there are just so many people that would do such a good. And so that's the reason why I absolutely 100% agree with the access. But I think that's kind of what I'm saying by how Matt Taibbi is saying, like, I just haven't seen it. I just haven't seen it. That's because yeah. he, he hasn't. And, and look at, 
And I, I would like it. Like, I heard, I haven't had a chance to talk to Taibi about it yet, but I heard him on a call-in, and someone asked him about it. And, you know, there is a way, like, I don't want to seem like I'm so obsessed with the left being like, I've been censored, and I need you to be looking for it. Like, and I'm wary, wary of coming off like that. But it is quite yeah. obvious to me, like, the implication of I, I just haven't seen it is that, like, what Matt has basically said is, they just weren't targeting the left. And I don't believe that. I'm sorry. No. I, I have no. eyes and I've been on this app for a long time and I just don't believe it. And so I, I do believe that he hasn't seen it because I think that if you're running searches on Hunter Biden and 2020 and all of that, that's what the focus is. And I'm not, I don't begrudge anybody for having that focus. Like that's a perfectly legitimate mm-hmm. line of inquiry. But right. me personally, I don't give a shit about that stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> I yeah, would I, like to learn about some other things, please. If you if you if I've, you're mad the public isn't interested in the in the Twitter files, I have a solution for how to make the public more interested, and that is to talk about the things the public is fucking interested in outside of just what right wingers are interested in. Yeah, exactly. But I will have to say, in that same interview that he did, um, you know, Matt Matt Taibbi he kind of admitted to exactly what Glenn's worry was. About, you know, because he because he basically kind of admitted, well, I, I really can't confirm that they're seeing everything because it's basically he gives the query to attorneys, right? The attorneys give him that back. So that's the information that he gets, you know, so he he did kind of. Ad- yeah. He did and, absolutely and like, say that that's how it was. When you're a lawyer, also like you. So you design search terms. You do you spend a lot of time debating on what the search terms actually are. You say, "Oh, this I, we ran the search. The results are too broad. This is too many documents. We're getting too many non-responsive hits." Blah blah blah. blah. And then you bargain over that for a while. Then you get a list back of all of the things that, even though they match the search terms, they're not going to give you. And then they have to give you a reason why they're not going to give it to you. And then you go back and forth in court over those reasons. Uh, it's attorney-client privilege. Uh, you know, like what, whatever. And then you dispute that. And then sometimes you have to let someone else see it and they make a decision about the documents. We're getting none of that. We we have yeah, no and- idea what was cherry picked out, what wasn't handed over. What pe- like we're not like, and it's like a shitty situation again for us to have, be having less transparency than if this were like a civil litigation. Right. And that's kind of what Tidy's point was, is he was saying like, he doesn't really kind of ever. And, and I think Glenn kind of mentioned this too. Like Twitter, since Elon bought Twitter, it doesn't mean that he doesn't have liability. So if yeah. they do do it in that data dump, Twitter is still liable for any of the repercussions. And that means he's financially liable. So I don't think that big data dump is coming <clears throat> anytime soon, which is I feel right. like the only thing that we can hope for is to push for people that will actually like look for some of the things that we think will sort of expose that this was not just done towards the right wing. And it's not just conservatives that, you know, we're getting suppressed too. And it's, and, and it's not, it's probably not at the DNC level. Cause I know Taibbi said like, those were some of his searches they're looking, he was looking for kind of like the political parties requesting suppression and he didn't see it in that way. But the right. DNC isn't suppressing the anti-war left. That's, literally like the department of defense the pentagon right and all of these think tanks and all those other type of hashtags you would have to run in order to find that information and only people that have that focus will be able to run those hashtags you know also i'm sorry i read the protested papers and you cannot tell me that there wasn't lobbying 
just like we saw that there was lobbying from the Biden administration, there's a hundred percent lobbying from Dems dating back to 2016 about all the Bernie bro shit. You cannot tell me that there's no discourse around that. Yeah. And they probably didn't give it to him. Be, be, well, maybe they didn't even ask. Like, like this yeah. is what I'm saying to Glenn. Like, I can imagine a world where Tabi was like, there's a lot of documents. Just give me back to 2018. Just give me back to, to yeah. 2019. That's that's yeah. reasonable. I don't, I'm not mad at anybody. I'm not blaming anybody. But, like, yeah. I'm going to be very transparent. I have my biases and interests, and that's what I care about. And I want to know about that. <laughs> so Yeah. Well, yeah. I agree. Anyway, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I, I, I just wanted to add, get back more on the Twitter files. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. Thanks right. for calling Thanks. in, Julie. You made some great points. All right. I think that they said that BK was technically before Jonathan and then Jonathan and then Ja and then I forget who. Oh, it oh, was somebody I, back here. I think Jonathan was after me, but I'll be I'll be really quick. Um, uh, have you heard of uh, Fiona Apple's activism around court watching? Someone else did bring that up, but I don't I don't know much about it. Well, I just really love Fiona Apple, and uh, I I feel like, you know, she could use a friend like you. Um, I feel like there's just, like, a lot of celebrities that have, like, a revolution in their heart, but, like, don't have a friend to help them, like, articulate it and help them not sound stupid, you know, if they ever want to act on those feelings. And um, I was also thinking, like, even someone as famous as Cardi B, if it was like, hey, Fiona Apple's on the phone for you. I feel like she'd be like, well, I wonder what she wants. You know what I mean? So. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, I, I, if you have Fiona Apple's phone number and want to put us in touch, feel free. <laughs> but I don't really know how I'm supposed to act, act on any of those things. You know what I mean? I, I don't, uh, I'm afraid I don't know Fiona Apple or Cardi B. I wish I did. My acapella group sung a couple of Fiona I know Apple that's what I was thinking. Mm-hmm, I know sorry, I've, been, I've been like trying to problem solve. Like, yeah, how do we get a hold of like yeah. celebrities wants it. That's why I was thinking like maybe befriending a few like you know maybe not the most famous but credible celebrities. Um and uh there were some like points when like I got triggered by Glenn but I dropped those thoughts in the Patreon comments. Um <laughs> so uh I won't bother you with but real quickly I did like back in 2003 I emailed uh Rachel Maddow and I was like I'm I'm writing this paper on same sex marriage and mm-hmm. Like, I'm stuck on, well, what about the whole, like, well, well it's a slippery slope to polygamy. And uh, I, w- I was like, you know, can you have any help with that? And she emailed me back and she was like, you know, I I only want to marry one person. That was her whole response. <laughs> and, uh, like, when I look back on that now, I mean, that was our only email exchange. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but, oh, interesting uh, that she wrote you back. Yeah, it was, you know, she had the Air America show early in the morning. I mean, it was, you know, she wasn't that famous yet, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. I did think it was like really cool. Um, mm. But yeah, it's, but like now I look back on it and I'm like, yeah, like us old gays, like we didn't, we weren't thinking about gender, <laughs> you know, even though like it always had to do with gender. Like when I was called a dyke, like it wasn't because I was like caught in the act of like, you know, <laughs> some same sex <laughs> act. It had to do with my gender presentation. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, so I've heard Glenn a lot be like, all this gender stuff is new. And I just want to be like, what? Mm-hmm. Really? Um, but so I'll just quickly, yeah. just, I just want to want people to just kind of like chew on that. I don't know. Like, I, I think that, yeah, there's a conflation between quote unquote trans stuff and gender stuff. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
don't want to overwhelm you with it. I know, gender's hard. But uh, yeah, I want to hear from Jonathan. So uh, I'll just uh, thanks, stop there. Thanks, and hang thanks so much. I appreciate you. Keep the faith. All right, Jonathan, what's on your mind? Hit me. Uh, well, uh, firstly, uh, if you're, if you were talking about that, uh, Sirota Colin episode, that was, that was me that, that asked oh, Matt. Yes. That's what exactly what it was. That's, and I, I got blocked by, uh, Adam Johnson of citations needed for relaying that information to him right in front of Branko Marchetich too, who was like, what the fuck, dude? Wait, what was but Adam Johnson's, why was he, why would he block you for saying he, because he's he's an infant about Matt Taibbi and this whole thing, and he just would not hear any polite, reasonable, gentle uh, suggestions that you know maybe the Twitter files were a legit story, and that maybe Matt Taibbi doesn't have some secret right wing agenda here. But uh, anyway, the uh, before I talk about the 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 episode, which was awesome, I, I kind of wanted to drop a suggestion because uh, there's something you're going to be dealing with sooner rather than later anyway, at least on Rising, which is, uh, you know, you've got another, like, the debt ceiling, which is another kind of choke point where uh, the Democrats basically, in this case, the Biden administration again, uh, has tools, weapons, you know, policy, uh, things that they can, should do and are just refusing to do their job on it. And uh, like the debt ceiling thing could be like this yearly ritual could be ended forever uh, with a perfectly legal maneuver. It's uh, typically uh, referred to as mint the coin. And there's a guy I wanted you to uh, maybe talk to about it, which I'm, I'm more than happy to help facilitate, but uh, he's uh, some of our MMT economists are actually lawyers and Rohan Gray is one of those. And he's a professor at uh, Willamette Law School in Oregon, uh, graduated from Cornell Law. But uh, he was the one who wrote the bill for Rashida Tlaib on a mint the coin thing, like back in, I'm wanting to say 2019. Uh, and he's he's been pushing, um, you know, for like the last couple of years. Hey, and, you know, he even got David Dyan to put that on his list of, uh, you know, the powers the president has in the first hundred days. Mint the damn coin. Like, there is absolutely no reason not to. He's interviewed the former head of the Mint that wrote that law, giving the president the power to do that, and they knew they had the power to do that. And he can explain the whole thing and why it's so stupid for them not to, to keep refusing to do it. And for some reason, they they just seem to to like this, this little uh, standoff ritual they're doing, this kabuki theater. Like, I maybe they're trying to use it as an excuse to cut more public services. I just don't know. But anyway, I wanted to make that suggestion of Rohan Gray. Um, uh, but yeah, the episode, the episode was fabulous. And I'm, I'm glad that, you know, two relatively high profile personalities are finally talking about this because there's a great deal of interest in it and almost no media coverage. Mm-hmm. And like, I think you and Glenn are probably the largest platforms to, that I've seen uh, talk about this just in terms of, of viewer reach, um, you know, other than like a few things on Fox news and like, honestly, like this is important for all the reasons that, that you kind of, I mean, that you, that you touched on and the conversation about it and the, you know, the, the nature of it, I think is, is also important. And, 
like I just I thought you just touched on so many important things and like you you also have this way of kind of giving voice to the concerns that I would have given voice to if I was able to sit there and it just it, it kind of like those kinds of conversations like just it makes me feel like I like I've got a, a great representative in the room and you know I tend to disagree with Glenn in the same place as you do but like he does have a great conversation every time. And I just like, I love this whole, this whole episode, all one hour and 40 minutes of it. I love the fact that it was longer than normal. Uh, I love the, you know, the fact that you, you touched on some of these, these other issues and including things that I think uh, neoliberal tears and I discussed on ours, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, kind of like where, where Glenn stands these days and, and things like that, that, uh, you know, I like one of the things you can never take away from the guy is that he is out there planting, uh, you know, heterodox viewpoints in right wing spaces. And he is the reason that my right wing parents know so many um, things like, uh, you know, the facts of the Julian Assange case mm-hmm. and, you know, a lot of things about the the kinds of things the intelligence community is doing that overstep and mm-hmm. the details of the Russiagate hoax and, and, you know, stuff like that. That's, that's important to know. And it kind of throws a, a wrench in the cogwheel of like traditional narratives. And, you know, while I do think there's a degree to which he underestimates the degree to, to which when he's swimming in that milieu, when he's giving something, he's also getting something back in return, but the human brain is naturally bad at, at determining that sort of thing. Uh, but his integrity, with his integrity, like there's nobody that I would rather, you know, if somebody had to do that mission and, you know, you considered it like, you know, and have it not be a suicide mission, uh, he would be the one that I would choose. Like he has the most kind of body armor in that, in that sense, just because he's so stubborn. But, uh, and he's got a, he's got a very strong moral anchor. And I think that's also why he's he's uh, been for so long such good friends with Matt Taibbi. He also has a very strong moral anchor. So, like to a certain degree, yeah, they they've done some things that I wouldn't have done. They've taken some positions I wouldn't have taken. They've maybe uh, conceded too much on certain fronts, uh, or kind of gotten sucked down some rabbit holes I wouldn't have got sucked down. But uh, for the most part, they are who they've always been. And, you know, that integrity is, is basically something you can take to the bank. And uh, that's, you know, honestly, like it was just it was just great content, like all hour and 40 minutes of it, plus the however long you were on his show for 20 minutes. Like it was just it was awesome. And I, I wanted to say, uh, you know, thanks for I mean, man, like I really got my my uh, my money's worth on this Patreon subscription, like just literally the best bargain for the buck. Well, look, I appreciate you saying all of that. That's that's very generous. And I think the point that you're making about, I mean, whatever you think, whatever you think about Glenn and Matt and, you know, other heterodox people, I, I do think that they don't get enough credit for going into the lion's den and making arguments that other people aren't brave enough or able enough to make there in ways that make a real difference. And you're right, I think people's cognition makes it very uh, easy to point out where they've transgressed, where they differ from, you know, their approach differs from people who are broadly ideologically aligned. 
and we don't necessarily see all of the progress they're making in these spaces as easily because to us, we're, we already agree with those arguments. We're familiar with those arguments. They don't stand out in our brain as much. But I, I think I think that part of the frustration, and it, I mean, I think Glenn must be frustrated by, you, know, you, hear, you kind of hear it in the way that he talks, like, everybody liked me when I was reporting on this stuff and all this stuff I did and all this work I did, and people seem to be willing to flip so quickly. Like, I get that frustration because it, it does kind of sometimes feel like, are you not going to give him any credit for this stuff? I'm not saying you don't have to disagree with where you disagree, but to be so willing to say someone is a bad faith actor when there is this huge multi-year catalog of really like unmatched and unimpeachable work that came at a lot of expense to himself, risk to his own life and family. And I mean, he's been hogtied in his own house and persecuted by the Brazilian government and every other kind of thing. Me, I would just take a beat before presuming there is, he's, I'm not saying everybody is possible. It's possible for everyone to make mistakes and everything. But given what we know about every all the risks he's taken for principles that I agree with, I would just take a little bit of a beat before assuming the absolute worst and kind of throwing the whole kit and caboodle under the bus the way that so many other people have been willing to do. Yeah. I mean, that was another important point you touched on in the podcast episode, including, you know, getting into that whole issue of the fact that you see in these right-wing spaces, like you, like I like the example you gave of the Marjorie Taylor Greene thing. Like she's a dumb, dumb, and disingenuous and dishonest, but she's right about the FBI thing. And they're all like rolling out the red carpet. Please be mm-hmm. my best friend. Mm-hmm. Come on my podcast. Blah blah blah. And whereas, like the left is like you said, one thing out of line. Ugh, you're not one of us anymore. Get lost. You're a fascist now. Right. And the fact of the matter is the 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 fact that Glenn Greenwald and you know to a lesser degree because he hasn't been quite as deep in the milieu as Glenn has, uh, but have not, despite the fact that they now have a large and, and growing um, you know kind of uh, right libertarian fan base, um, have not been sucked down that rabbit hole and maintain. Look, I'm not an ex leftist. Like you're going to hear some things here that you're not going to like and but I'm going to tell you the truth as I see it and the fact that they are still there in fact you know Matt Taibbi's I think when he started doing the Twitter files his Twitter following like more than doubled I think he's pushing 2 million now Oh really and wow. like the interest in this story and it's not just I I guarantee you those aren't all right wingers like yeah. the interest in this story is broad it's deep and uh you know there's a whole lot of very powerful people that are determined to paint it as a nothing burger. Uh, but um, I was going to say something and I, I completely got lost on that thread there. Like it was something about, but I mean, Oh yeah. The, the fact that they haven't got sucked down that rabbit hole and have basically maintained they are where they are. And to a large degree, like being very familiar with a lot of their work, like I don't see a lot of drift, especially in Taibbi's work. He's kind of the same guy he's always been. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, you know, I think people like that are only checking in from time to time that are not following his work uh, may be misled by sometimes the arguments that he finds himself in that pop into their Twitter timeline uh, that may look like he's defending positions that are not necessarily, you know, huge core values of his, but, uh, you know, instances where he's, yeah. I think just 
breaks everybody's brain. Like, look, I, again, I'm doing this Brazil episode. Maybe there's something I don't know. But I saw so much vitriol. Like, Glenn was trending last week. I saw so much, so much criticism of the idea that Glenn had flipped on Lula and was now pro Bolsonaro. And I was like, wow, that's crazy because Glenn got Lula out of jail. So this must be some crazy stuff. This must be some really substantive accusation. Like, big if true, you know? But I'm like, yeah, I learned to take a beat on that stuff. And I'm just like, I, I'm like, I'm truly, I don't have a, like, I, I'm not against hearing the argument. I wanted to know if it was true. And like, there's nothing but the accusation. And then a lot of it was in Portuguese. And I was like, I'm tired of t- pressing this translate button. So I'm going to do an episode about it. Cause like, I, I, like, if there's something, I want to know what at least the accusation is so I can have an opinion on it, but it's just exhausting that like, if it's really that, if it's really there, like, I, it seems to me like I'm not. I'm not. You know, who knows what this episode will reveal? But it just seems to me like there, to make the the, the the size, the gravity of that observation or accusation, seems to me that it would yield more specifics up front than what I saw yeah. with the cursory Twitter search. And then when I was talking to Glenn, I was gonna kind of bring it up, but then every comment that he had about Bolsonaro was negative, and every comment that he had about Lula was positive, and it felt insane for me at some point to say. Oh, I hear you really love Bolsonaro. Because I mean, nothing about the conversation would indicate that that would be the case. So we'll see. Yeah, and it, it yeah, no, it, like I and I thought he did like toward the end of the episode. I think he he basically explained his position and why he was the only thing that I saw that people were quote tweeting of his was that he was up in arms about the heavy handed censorship. Yeah, and, well, that's Glenn. Uh, he doesn't like censorship. Yeah. Right. That's new? like the. <laughs> But that's not pro Bolsonaro, you know, like it's so weird. I don't know. It's a weird. Yeah, people are eager to, to like, for some reason they're bound and determined to form a snap judgment right there. They will not wait for any further information. There's no putting a pin in it. Let's, let's wait to hear, you know, what's going on here before I make a judgment. No, there has to be a judgment made right now. And that I think is part of the problem. Like, I think we live more easily in a space where we're like, Let's put a pin in that and wait till we hear more information because, goodness, like, wouldn't it suck and be embarrassing to be wrong about something like that and throw somebody who was always good to us and uh, has done a lot of good work under the bus for a false accusation? But uh, evidently, like I said, you know, people want to be mad on the Internet, and that's that's where we are, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, it's good. But anyway, that's always Jonathan. Definitely. Right. You have a good one. Hello, Ja. And uh, <laughs> just wanted to say that before I go. All right. I appreciate that. Keep the faith. You too. All right, Ja. What's in your mind tonight? Ja? Um, oops. Sorry. I accidentally made you speaker. Oopsies. Uh, well, hi. I'll, I'll be gone soon. <laughs> um, <laughs> what's on my mind? Oh, you, Brianna Joy Gray, is on my mind. Um, I just haven't gotten to uh, speak to you in a while, and it's a new year, even though it kind of doesn't feel like a new year because Mercury's been in retrograde since, like, late December, and it just feels like... Wait, how long has Mercury been in retrograde? Because I feel like Mercury just stays in retrograde. Oh, it, it, you know, it's just from December 28th and until maybe I think it goes, I think it probably goes direct later this week, I want to say. 
what's today? The 15th? 16th. This is 16th. Yeah, I think it goes direct on the 18th or, or the 19th or something. Ooh, ooh. Get I your babies. I need to water my plants because it's halfway through the month. Yeah. Um, so it, it's been weird, but um, I just want to ask you, you know, for this new year, um, you know, what are some of your goals? Uh, what are some of your dreams? What are some of the things that you, you want to see in your own life? Um, yeah, that, that, that's my question. Well, in the beginning of 2021, you know, because of the nature of 2020 and not leaving the house and walking, I uh, hopped on the scale and like what I saw and recommitted to my fitness lifestyle. I ran every single day from January 27th, 2021, the day of the scale. I don't own scales. I don't believe in scales, but I was at a friend's house. So I remember the date and uh, I didn't stop running every day uh, until I got COVID this past summer. Yeah. And then I fell off hard and there have been consequences. So I am back on the stick. I've been, I haven't missed a day since I think I started a little bit before Christmas when I was home for the break. And that's why I will be having to get up after this call and go to the gym, which I don't love for me, but it is what it is, but it's feeling good. It's been feeling good. I think doing exercise, it helps me feel like able you know, mm-hmm. it makes me feel like I, you know, like really in my own body and like capable That's and, right. you know, the kind of goals that life puts ahead of you are often so long term and largely out of your control. Mm-hmm. But exercise, I really believe in the thing where kids do sports and learn that like what you put into it is what you get out of it. Because I do think that that's it's one of the few things in life, like basic control over, like increasing your stamina. Oh, I used to could only run this many miles at this pace, and look at how my pace improves just because I've been doing something diligently. And uh-huh. look at how I can do more reps, and you know, I like look look at how my body is changing, and my genes are fitting differently, and you know, look how strong I feel, and look how less much less winded I am doing this kind of activity, and it just yeah. makes you feel like. A lot of things are possible outside of the physical realm when you gain mastery over this like relatively small part of your life. That's Not to right. mention the adrenaline and all the stuff that comes from running. So that's been good. Excellent. That was a Congratulations, Bree. No, that was wonderful. <laughs> this is the kind of cool stuff I want to hear. You know, I'd be thinking about you. I'm like, how, how's Bree doing? You know, I'm always... I'm always worried about your, I'm always talking to you. I'm like, Bree, did you get enough sleep last night? <laughs> no, never. You know? I slept an average of one to three hours every night of the week last week. Oh, God. When I rolled into Rising on Thursday <laughs> with my puffy face, it was on one hour of sleep. Don't ask why. I was going in the gym. Ooh, I said I didn't miss a day. It's because I was at the gym at like four o'clock in the morning on some truly wild shit. I don't, yeah. I can't explain. I'm not saying, look, I've got my own demons, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but I went to the gym, didn't I? You I did. got there. It took me hours of procrastinating in the wee small hours of the morning after I finished my radar at like 1 a.m. But I got oh, there. Oh, your radars have been fantastic. Um, you know what I told them? I, I, I rise uh, in the other day. I, this is a sick, sick, sad fact that there is a direct correlation between how late I finish my radar and how well it performs. If I get my radar done like a good girl by like 4 p.m., 
it's trash. Nobody watches it. <laughs> I I'm mean, none of them are trash. Sweating. <laughs> then it's a banger. It's I don't know what's going on. It's so irritating. I wonder what I wonder um, uh, where in your astrology chart Mars is. Mars. Um, Mars will get you in that mode where you're quick you know, with it. Somebody told or... me, Brianna, don't be telling people about your chart because they can use the information against you. But I don't have time for that, so I'm gonna. You ain't never lied. <laughs> but I was like, know. if someone wants to like do some magic, oh wait, it's not downloaded on my new phone, so that would take. Don't nobody uh, don't nobody understand astrology half the time. People are like, what horoscopes? And I'm like, no. I had like talking- tweeted it. And all these astrology girlies are like, no queen, don't don't let people know what your Venus is, or they're gonna hoodwink you in some kind of a way. Yeah, that sounds pretty superstitious to me, but <laughs> sure, maybe. Yeah. And the episode was great today, Bree. I really enjoyed it. And you know what, man? Glenn's all right with me. He doesn't always <laughs> like sometimes I'd be like, Whatever, Glenn, corny. But most of the time I'm like, Okay, you're making sense, you're consistent. And I know that if someone calls him on some BS, he's going to actually think about it. And that's the kind of stuff that counts. It reminds me of being in a like you know, a really good interpersonal or romantic relationship. They're going to piss you off. You know, <laughs> your, your partner is going to happen. But you, you have to look for the qualities in the person that makes it so that you can always come together and and talk it out. And they're open to reform and change of their behavior and of their thought sets and as long as you have those core things in place, then most of the time people are going to be all right, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I mean, I like that idea of bringing kind of more your friendship standards to and relationship standards to the Internet people you like and instead of judging them by kind of a level of purity that you would, you would never I – mean, you'd have no friends if you use, like, these purity standards in your real life. By the way, I downloaded it real quick. My Mercury is in Leo. I've got a lot. Oh, Leo. that makes sense. My Mars, so Mercury, like, Moon, and Sun obviously are all in Leo. Mars, Mar- okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, Mars, Mar- Mars, and Mercury are in Leo. So very direct form of communication, very strong. You can convince anybody of anything, which I find to be pretty oh, true. And you're real good. Um, it's you know when you're challenged, you you come out really, really strong. And you, I mean, you know, that shit is in the sign of the Sun. You know, like. <laughs> people are like people people who don't like astrology are losing their minds they're like what does it mean look i'll tell you what it means costar is an amazing app that will explain your mercury determines how you communicate talk think and process information Mm -hmm. and also indicates how you learn it's the mind's planet your mercury is in leo meaning your intellect is persuasive idealistic and bold a natural leader you speak articulately and with confidence use creativity and warmth to win others attention you may come off as overbearing or conceited. Say or what? Detected. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. Excuse the coughing and stuff. I have, girl, I have strep throat. Oh no! So I'm sitting up in my room popping amoxicillin right now. Oh no! Are you gonna get some rest tonight? Up late at eleven o'clock on this app. Oh, it's only nine o'clock here in um, crazy old Phoenix. Um, oh okay. So yeah, All but right. I will be getting some good rest, man. I had the chills, the fever, everything. So. Oh no, are you? What What's your strategy? Because my brother, my older brother, has strong feelings about. He's like the drugstore pharmacist. He's like, mm. you need to take these Alka Seltzer. Here's a Thermaflu. 
He will have you dosed up with every over-the-counter thing in the world, and you will be knocked out on some. He's like, no, that's the bad NyQuil. You have to get the NyQuil that they have behind the counter that has a better dosage in it. I'm like, okay, Brandon. (laughs) That's funny. No, I mean, I just take a basic, um, just so that you don't have to put too many different drugs in your body. Like, if it's something like a strep throat, then... You know, you got you to go to the doctor and get your antibiotics, and then you just mitigate the pain and the inflammation with ibuprofen or Advil or whatever, in some sort of NSAID. And then <clears throat> if you end up having a fever, then you want to take acetaminophen, Tylenol, and you can take those two together. You just can't take double NSAIDs. So that's why I kind of tend to stay away from, you know, random syrups and Theraflu and all that stuff, because a lot of times <laughs> it can be redundant on the insides you know what mm-hmm. i'm saying mm-hmm. so, so mm-hmm. yeah real basic and then just I, i'd rather not take those syrups and just like squeeze a damn lemon and some honey you know something that'll something that'll help your throat naturally and just let the medicine do its job mm-hmm. well that's what the this guy was dating was saying when he was sick a little while ago and then i made him have a theraflu and he knocked out and woke up the next morning a new man and i was like i've been trying to tell you i used to be like that like i don't want to take any drugs i'm not going to take I don't believe, I never believed in aspirin. And then I got to a point where, you know, Aunt Flo basically forced me to confront the reality that Advil works. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I I got debilitating cramps when I was in college. And I remember one day I had to go to my work study job. There was like a shuttle that would take you from the quad to the campus in a a loop. Mm -hmm. And I got on the shuttle. And by the time I got to the job, I was like, no, ma'am. And I stayed on the shuttle and... (laughs) <laughs> looped back to my dorm and curled up on the ground. I was like, I can't live my life like this anymore. And from that point on, I was like, I'm going to start taking Advil. That shit worked. And I was like, oh, mm-hmm. this actually works. It's not just psychosomatic. And then I've been on board with whatever my brother tells me to take. Oh, yeah. My <laughs> kidneys are just going to have to sh- shrivel into prunes. Because <laughs> I'm it's not, not doing that it. often. You know, I'm like yeah. sick, like it's like twice a year or whatever. Less now with COVID and the mask and stuff. I never get sick anymore. Yeah, exactly. The one thing I do have to stop taking is because I have such bad indigestion and I have a pancreatic deficiency and sometimes mm. digestion just goes awry. I really can't be drinking Pepto-Bismol all the time. Like just, oh. you know, yes, yeah, not good. Okay. I'm going to tell one Pepto-Bismol story. I haven't, okay. I haven't <laughs> had Pepto-Bismol since I was like a child, except for I went to Brown over the summer to give a talk uh, at, with Glenn Lowry mm. and after so we he had us all me and a bunch of professors over to his house for dinner his wife cooked a lovely meal it was a lovely evening however the next morning i woke up and i had what i believe is terrible food poisoning i was <laughs> on the floor in the bathroom i'm a big germaphobe i hate bathrooms i was in this hotel bathroom clinging to this toilet <laughs> just prostrate my cheek on the cold nasty floor of this hotel room i was sick and two of my best friends live in boston so they were they were going to come and get me and take me to lunch that morning anyway i called them i was like i am dying i don't know if i'm going to make it tell my mother i love her i don't know what's going on (laughs) so they were like what can i bring you so they they go to the drugstore and they meet me in the lobby of this hotel once i managed to get myself up up off the floor and I stumbled down to the lobby with like a pair of glasses on looking less than ideal. And they've spread out over <laughs> one of the tables in the hotel lobby, every pharmaceutical 
three things of like the what do you call it? vitamin water, Pepto Bismol, mm-hmm. aspirin. I'm spending much too much information about my reproductive system, but I had also it was also that time of the month that had kicked in, so they brought me all of these pads. All of this was like skewed across this table. We're sitting there, the three of us lurched over. I'm like trying to chug Pepto Bismol, and I hear Brianna, and I turn around. And it's a guy, he works in the hotel. He's like, hi, I listen to the podcast. I was like, oh, Lord. Because the way this is looking, it looks like me and my friends went out on a crazy bender. And I am chugging every product known to man (laughs) out here in public with these sunglasses on looking like Stevie Wonder's cousin. It was not a good look. And so I try to pull it together and have a nice small talk with this man. And I'm like, this is not what this looks like, sir. I don't know how to explain it to you. But oh I swear this is just God. a food poisoning. I'm like trying to like scoot the pads away. And the worst part is the reason why the pads are crucial to the story is my friend who purchased these items from the drugstore is a man. My friend Joe, he's been on the podcast before. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Joe tried his best, but Joe fully brought me poise, which are mm. incontinence products. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which... You know, so now this man is fully thinking that I'm both unable to hold my bladder, <laughs> needing adult diapers, and in some kind of bender. And I was like, this is the most humiliating. <laughs> if you're out there still listening to the podcast, sir, I just want you to know that that was all a big misunderstanding. Okay? Brianna. That's the last time in my life I had Pepto-Bismol, and I don't see myself buying it anytime soon. <laughs> I hope, may you never have to use Pepto-Bismol again. And I... <laughs> Time of death right now, nine <laughs> nine twelve mountains time. That shit is hilarious. Doesn't it suck when you have this moment where you're, where like you, there's nothing you can do, and somebody just sees you, and and you're like, Lord knows what this person's going to be thinking about me. This is such a rare occurrence, and there's just nothing you can do about it. It is nothing you can do, but laugh. Nothing you could do, which we are laughing. So, <laughs> but look, I'm gonna dip on out of here and gargle some warm salt water and try and get some sleep um all right take care of yourself john it's been a real pleasure always brie um happy new year good to talk to you again keep the faith all right keep the faith bye-bye all right now i'm not gonna forget is it claire you guys are like don't forget and then they do the at but the at is not their handle and so it's confused excuse me okay claire claire who got booted to the back what is on your mind tonight? Hello? Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Okay, wow. This is really exciting for me. Uh, Brianna, I'm a huge fan. This is my first time uh, talking to you, so I just want to say I really uh, appreciate welcome, all Claire. the work you do. Welcome, Claire. Thanks, give you yeah. a little bit of a clappy clap. Oh, first you. time caller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you, you just make me feel a lot less crazy, and then also you don't go around saying problematic stuff just for fun so that it's a good medium <laughs> yeah is that the bar it, it <laughs> is it's honestly it's so hard for me like to find stuff that's like not boring and then not saying problematic stuff because like i was like i first got on the chapo but like i don't know they're just i i really like are they problematic I really like these days approach. i feel like chapo they go better chapo gets a reputation of being like what red scare actually is you know what I'm oh, saying? Oh, Red Scare. Oh, my God. Yeah. And no. that's not shade. Like, I mean, I listen to Red Scare, but it is definitely, like, 
not an endorsement listen do you know what i mean (laughs) yeah i don't know what's going on with red scare because it's like there's just there's so much going on that i don't like i just i can't i can't engage with it anymore mostly because they they love to make these weird like gay and trans jokes that i'm like i'm pretty sure you guys are both like straight women i think you're doing this because you think you're edgy it's just it's it's not really that funny it it feels (laughs) it only feels acceptable because it feels like a fully a bit like it's just a bit yeah but it's also at a certain point why this bit i mean okay like if if you know there's also like the weird like the skinniness stuff i mean there's like just weird bits it's fine it's whatever it's fine look i I actually very compelling i I don't know what it is but i find them very compelling and i like to put them on and listen to them but i I hear what you're saying about um an unproblematic an unproblematic fave no yeah i mean it's it's such a vibe like it's you know it's so mellow and like they do bring up good points um, yes they can be very insightful yeah, I had to defend them recently because, like, some, like, liberal on this other podcast that I listen to, not for politics, but they love to pretend, like, they know anything about politics, especially, mm-hmm. like, leftist politics. They, like, came after the Red Scare ladies for hanging out with Joe Rogan. And I'm like, did you guys even, like, look at the context of that? Like, they were, they were, oh, no, no, it wasn't Joe Rogan. It was, um, oh, gosh, what's his name? Alex Jones. Alex Jones. Um, yeah. yeah. They, like, I'm like, did you even, like, listen to that interview? Like, that was not... That was not them like endorsing Alex Jones. Like that was them doing like a journalistic thing of like they're not going to like refuse a man like shooting on his land in Austin after they've come to visit him to interview him to press him on all these issues that they disagree with. Like it's just yeah. I mean, there's a photo out there somewhere of me and Charlie Kirk after our interview that I'm not looking forward to coming out. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Let me take a picture and your instinct is to just get in picture pose. And then in retrospect, like, oh shit, now there's a picture of me with like with my arm around Charlie Kirk smiling. (laughs) Like, fuck. (laughs) Right, yeah. I know. And then some liberal on like a love and dating podcast is gonna say that you love you love that guy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um okay, yeah. So just like I I wanted to bring up um like the the trans stuff that you guys were talking about. Um so I just want to like get this out of the way that like Glenn like really like offhandedly like brought up said this thing about that there were some states trying to pass bills to like make not giving your children gender affirming care child Mm -hmm. abuse and I don't know why he said that like I as soon as I heard that I was like this is the biggest load of shit I've ever heard in my life that is not happening I have not found it so if like anyone knows what that is or if he just like made up a thing like i just want to bring it up because i don't i don't really think that he like means anything by it but it just sounds like the sort of thing that people make up you know to be um you know and that's that's the issue with a lot of this stuff it's like as much as i think that liberals whatever that is can be kind of we won the culture war and we can be overbearing and preachy and moralizing about stuff sure fine preachy moralizing and like winning the cable news and like having will and grace or whatever is not the same thing as legislation to force people to do what you want to do no matter how many times conservatives say you're like forcing your lifestyle on somebody like one side is just like winning the culture war and people just like drag shows because it's fun (laughs) another (laughs) side is legislating to prevent people from doing all of those stuff because they can't just win the war of ideas 
Well, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's all hypocrisy. And I like, I, I honestly don't know, like, where to begin with engaging with it. Because like, obviously, you know, I think I was like, I, you know, was hearing you guys talk about this. And I was like, thinking it out in my own head. And I'm like, you know what, I think the problem is, is that we're like legislating really when like we don't know what the fuck we're talking about like um i just think like with this like trans like issue i feel like what should be happening is that like like everyone should have access to what they think they should have access to and then that should just be between the doctors the parents and the kids like i i just i can't get excited about this like like hypothetical like parents that are making their kids be trans which i feel like is what is like maybe the fear and like i think the other fears is like oh well like what if you change your mind but like the rate of like detransition and like this is like such a like taboo topic in the trans community like i'm i'm trans by the way so like mm-hmm. like the, trans people hate to talk about detransition because i think like and I and I do like I see why and I think it's like definitely a thing that probably for now should stay kind of within the community or like with friends because mm-hmm. it's just so easy for these people to grab onto. Even though if you look at the data, like we're already talking about like such a small percentage of the population, right? Like mm-hmm. just trans people alone. And then you look at how many trans people are detransitioning, which is like three percent of trans people even. And then, and then ninety percent of those trans people who detransition, or maybe they're not trans anymore. You know, I don't want to put that label on them if they don't want it. But um, they they say that the reason that they detransition is because of society. Like yeah, it's not it's even hard, that yeah. right. It's so, and like I can also see you know an argument like a potential angle of like. Um, you know, I I like grew up socialized as as a girl as a woman. And, but I, I mean, I'm not cis, so I can't speak for this, but I can totally see a cisgender girl or woman having the thought like, hey, like maybe I'd rather be a man just because everyone's treating me so shittily <laughs> because of something I can't control. Mm-hmm. So like, if you really wanted to, you know, address these issues and like, I feel like this, I, I also think of abortion in this same realm like, if you really wanted to address these issues, you would address, like, these real-world social phenomena, like, you know, stop being shitty to trans people, stop being shitty to women, like, try to address, like, poverty. But, of course, that's not what it's about. So I guess I'm just like, where do I even, you know, begin with this? Like, I, I feel like these days I feel like I should just, like, shut up and <laughs> carry on with it because... Like, I don't even know where to begin with this. And I, I think that there's so many people out there doing really important work, but I, I just, I really struggle. And this is, I may be going off into a different direction, but like, I feel like I don't really know, like, what is this national strategy that we're doing? Because I think we're, we're really playing, you know, like, kind of defense all the time mm-hmm. in our own communities. So, and it seems like, you know, the Republicans, they've got this grand sweeping plan that's totally just owning everything right now. I, I think that's such an important question. One that I thought about and don't really feel like it's my place to start to answer. But I yeah. do observe one side seeming like they very much have a strategy and narratives that 
they work and then they tweak and then they shift slightly and then they pivot and you can see what the trajectory is from uh, anti-trans to grooming to legislation to 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 justify criminalizing various kinds of parenting to now we're criminalizing dressing you know uh, you know drag you know like that has nothing to do yeah, with yeah. Sexu- sexuality and and the slippery slope of it all. And on the other side, there's a whole mix of arguments and counter arguments. You know, we've had um, we had a trans guest, Aaron Aaron Reed, I think, on Rising recently, and the same day, a detransition oh, guest named Kat. I forget their last name, but we would have loved to have them both on together. And I invited them after to see if they would both come on together on Bad Faith Podcast. But there's, you know, it's difficult. I understand why people don't want to be on panels with people who they feel like are advancing beliefs that are so directly impactful to their lives. But it does feel like we keep going round and round in circles sometimes because you can't get people in the room to talk some of this stuff through. And it it is frustrating because we're we're all seeing it happening. And I think a lot of cis people feel like it's not really our place, but it just keeps coming up and it keeps, you know, it, it feels almost negligent to ignore it. I mean, this is one of those issues like we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast where it feels like, at what point are you tacitly endorsing X, Y, and Z by ignoring it? And so we have one guest come on and, and say some of the statistics that you just said about detransitioners, and I tend to agree that it's a little bit like talking about people who lie about rape. Some people yeah. somewhere in the minority <laughs> do lie about rape. But right. when you talk about it, it can validate, validate the idea that, like, all, most, a majority, even a significant number of rape victims are lying. And so there's this eagerness not to talk about it, even though that that even though that kind of hurts the small minority of people who did have an, a, a lie told about them. And don't they deserve to talk about their experiences? And it's difficult. It's like difficult to balance that from like a journalistic standpoint, right? And that's right. Yeah. That's kind of the Jesse Single of it all. You know, like is the issue that he's over-reporting on these issues, and does that evince a bias, or is he just doing journalism like the people who reported on the Duke rape, rape case? You know, and then the other, the the transition guest says, well, some of those transition statistics are wrong. And it, there's maybe slightly more uh, common because of the way you count this way, you know, count the stats this way and that way. And the question becomes, well, even if a, more people do detransition, what does that mean? Are we supposed to then criminalize people who do want to transition? And if we're criminalizing people transitioning or preventing parents from letting their kids transition, are we also preventing kids from letting their kids, sorry, parents from letting their kids get nose jobs and boob jobs, breast augmentation, breast reduction, circumcision. What is the principle that we're stating here? That surgical interventions under age are, should be illegal? That well, this is the thing. That is hormonal that... interventions under age should be illegal? That dressing yes. a certain way under age is illegal? What's, what's the line? Well, no, I would love to have, like, all these great, you know, like, nailing it down conversations, but I feel like, like, I feel like this is just what they want. Like they want us to get lost in this discourse. Like this is exactly why they're making the arguments that they are. And so by the time that we, you know, even get close to convincing maybe, you know, some, you know, cis people or whoever it is that this is, you know, like this is the correct course that we should be taking. Like the law is already the law. So I just, I guess I'm, this is what I'm worried about is that I think like we're, you know, falling into their trap that um you know that like 
because we're getting lost in the discourse, um, they're just able to legislate however they want. But, you know, of course, like, you know, people are voting these people into office. So like, if we don't talk about it, then we never have any hope of, you know, getting people on our side and seeing it just, it's so frustrating though. Cause it's like, I mean, with so many of these issues, like it's, it, this is literally like life and death. <laughs> like this is yeah. what we're talking about here. And it just, it, the lack of consistency bugs me so much. Like they're talking about parental rights when it comes to education, but as soon as it comes to right. saving your child's life, like you can't do that. And yeah, I just, I don't, I don't know what to do with it. A hundred percent. Like sometimes I think the best, and this is not an optimistic projection by any means, but the best case scenario is that Republicans are getting over their skis with this stuff and that everyone, everyone can see the hypocrisy about, the laws that will legislate what parents can do with their children um, and some of this drag stuff, like nobody, like this is one, either people don't like it affirmatively. They think it's bigoted and they don't like it. Or they're just like, why is this so much a focus of the politics? I just want healthcare, please. You know? And it's the same way the abortion stuff ended up hurting Republicans that this is a bit, we're, we're like, like there's, there's a limit to this stuff. And they're getting they're getting too crazy. Now I could be wrong, and maybe everybody actually just loves it. And I'm I'm really overestimating how progressive America is. But I just honestly think a lot of folks are weirded out by how much some of these cultural right wingers are obsessing over this stuff. It seems obsessional. Why is every politician on TV all the time talking about grooming? At a certain point, it just seems like sick, gross projection. You know, it's just weird. Nobody wants to talk about it this much. No, yeah, but it, it is disgusting. And but I, I do I don't think you're underestimating how like progressive America is, but I, I just get so concerned that like no one wants to rock the boat, which just seems crazy to me because it seems like things are so fucking terrible. Like yeah. I just don't know like I get it, like you know, everything could always be worse and we don't want to lose what we have to hold on to, but I just I mean, like are we are we supposed to like sit and like just harangue the Democrats all day long in hopes that they give us what they want. I mean, I know, I feel like you're always talking about, you know, we got to like actually advocate, like we have to withhold our votes so that, you know, they actually are inclined to listen to us and like, you know, divest from the Democratic Party. But you, you try to talk about that with, I guess it's liberals and they just, they, they pigeonhole you. They're like, you basically are voting for Trump now. Like, cause I'm like, Oh, I just don't, I'm not going to vote for Biden again. I'm not going to do it. Like yeah. I refuse. Like, I mean, join the club. Then, I'm sorry. It's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy. It's two, it's two years out. Like this is yeah. not like, you, you don't even know that I'm going to go through with it. Like this could just totally be, you know, a rhetorical stance that I'm, I'm taking strategically, but no, it's like yep. the posture <laughs> I took in 2020 when I was much more timid than I am today was Hey, I could vote for Biden. Like when I did my, my, I'm not endorsing Biden tweet after Bernie dropped out that everyone got so furious at me over. It wasn't even like, I'm never voting for Biden. All I said was, I'm not voting for Biden until he basically (laughs) bends the knee to some of these, you know, like millions of people voted for Bernie. This is an agenda that's popular. He needs to show that he's willing to accommodate this portion of the population. 
You know, I left the door open. Now, me personally, in my heart, I was never going to vote for him. But I was trying to model the idea (laughs) that I was a gettable vote. I mean, because I live in D.C. and, like, there's no point in me ever voting for the man. But, like, I wanted to put out there that, like, there should be a constituency of people that are gettable votes if he does X, Y, and Z. Like, that's leverage. Um, And people were still really pissed off. So, to me, like, I would love to have a movement that well in advance of a election again i think i wrote all of this in my defensive litmus test article that came out in 2020 in current affairs well in advance of an election make the terms very very clear and very very public such that if a candidate chooses to ignore the requests which should also be very very reasonable and only things that are very popular would actually help him electorally and many of which could be done by executive order and if he declines to agree to those terms then you have to make the argument that he chose to forego our votes. I didn't say I wasn't going to vote for him. He chose not to pick this low-hanging fruit because he is so caught, bought up by these various industries or whatever, whatever, whatever. You know, That's what right. I think should happen. Organizers, that's my advice. I don't know. But we're well out. We're two years out, and I think that we're well-positioned to, to make those. I mean, that's what Nader did with um, Al Gore. Al Gore didn't take it, and he lost. But I think you really got to publicize, like, this is all, this is my demands. I'm not being cagey about it. And they're very reasonable demands. And so the onus, the burden shifts to Biden to say, like, well, why wouldn't you just submit to this? Right. Yeah. And if he doesn't, and if he doesn't say yes, then you have a good argument to take to the American public to say, I've been telling you that Biden is unreasonable. It's not me. Biden is actually unreasonable and not at all in line with the interests of Democratic voters. So you deal with this. This is I'm not the problem. Biden's the problem. But that framing I mean, that but everyone agrees that Biden's the problem. <laughs> or well, unfortunately, I wish problem. everybody, Claire, I wish everybody agreed, but unfortunately, you know how it is. These people love, I mean, I wouldn't say people love Biden. I watched, no, they don't, watch but that's that, the thing. Yeah, people Sorry, are very what? lukewarm about him, but the people, like, in the Democratic Party think that that's good enough. I mean, there's no interest in changing it, you know? I do respect his uh, his his willingness to eat shit. I think that's a good quality in a president. When, was, like when did eating, Biden eat shit? I think on the Afghanistan, I think he ate shit. I think they fucked that up on pur- purpose to make him look bad. Mm. Well, he still the people were with him on that one. His approval ratings were, you know, good on that one. Did you I watch? Well, the, yeah, but it was a disaster. Sorry, go ahead. Did you watch the end that that documentary on Netflix by the guy who covered one six in? basically 2020 with the curly oh, hair. No. I think he has a Me Too alleg- uh, allegation against him now. I forget his name. I'm sorry. Oh, is this Andrew Callahan? Andrew Callahan, yeah. Okay, no, yeah. Isn't that, that's on HBO Max that just came out, didn't it? Oh, sorry, maybe it's on HBO, my bad. Um, yeah, I watched it over the weekend, and what was so interesting about it was that it was, you know, it did a pretty good job of showing what the political mood was in the months leading up to 1-6 and, like, it's an interesting flashback to 2020. Like it already feels like such a different time. And it was funny because he goes to all these Trump rallies and he's like, these people hate Biden, blah, 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 you know, blah, blah, blah. They love Trump. And then the other side of it, like the left leaning side of it isn't people who love Biden. I mean, there's like one really cringy liberal that they open with who's just like insane sounding, just as insane as the Trump people. And then they pivot to a bunch of kind of normie folks who are like, Eh, Biden sucks, but this is what we're going to do. Or a bunch of like black people who are like, <laughs> eh, nothing's really going to change no matter who you vote for. And it's, it's like so real. It's like yeah, so true. Yeah. <laughs> the two sides were, I love Trump. 
I hate Hillary. And the other side was, yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> well, but this is the thing is that like, I feel like maybe we deserve the right to be like a little insane and like, just be like, no, we, we want someone that we actually love. And, like, yeah. you, guys, you guys get to deal with the rest of it. Like, I just, I don't get why we, we always have to be the ones conceding on everything. I look, I am fully in my, um, accelerationist era. <laughs> is that what you can say? Yeah. Everything. Yeah, yeah. Era. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, you thought it was annoying in 2020. Buckle up, kiddos. <laughs> was, here, um, comes, here comes 2024. Was the uh, was the documentary about one six good? I've been debating about whether to watch it because like now there's these allegations against this guy. Yeah, um, <laughs> I like I feel like I have to watch all of this stuff for like commentary reasons. Right. I thought it was like surprisingly pretty balanced and it felt really true to the moment. Mm-hmm. I would have liked more of an acknowledgement of like what the left left was doing. There was a very short interview with Brace Belden. Um, from Truanon, but he didn't really talk mm-hmm. about leftism. And while I think it accurately depicted the broad, like liberal left as not that enthusiastic about Biden, and there was a kind of critique about how the media, the corporate media was trying to pit people against each other in extremes um, yeah. and create a false sense of antagonism in the country, which I think was a right and true observation. It didn't supply the why. So, mm-hmm. like, that would have been the left part of it, right? Like, that would have been a, yeah. the part where they want to distract you from all of these substantive material needs in the country in crisis and COVID and all of this stuff. But it was still, I think, quite, like, it, it surpassed my expectations, and it was very entertaining and, I thought, very well edited. Like, it was it was it, enjoyable to watch. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, well, I don't, I don't want to keep you up too long. Um, I really enjoyed speaking with you. Um, yeah, thanks. Yeah, so much. I also enjoyed speaking with you, Claire. I hope you call back again. And um, yeah, this has been a great call in. I was only going to stay for two hours tonight. You guys got me. Y'all always get me. <laughs> the trick is that I actually enjoy doing this, which is very annoying to me in my sleep schedule. But I'm about to get my us up and go to the gym. And I will see. Oh, that is not our theme song. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Guys, how cringe is this theme song that's pre-programmed into the board? Oh, okay. I'm so sorry. No, that's not what we want. This is what we want. (laughs) Okay. Good night, Claire. Good night, everybody. Uh, See you later this week. Keep the faith. in the tall grass wish i had a pilot in a podcast wish i had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars scats wish i had a million dollars i wish i had a million albums i wish i had a million problems that way i couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes i wish i found a genie lamp i wish them girls gave me them sugar like beanie man yeah i wish i was a comedian late night sitcom syndicated on tv land this well had water in it These kids are stealing all my pennies Focused on my wealth You can help me wish But I would rather wish for help It's like, it's like I wish, I wish That every time we love And it feels just like this 
I wish, I wish that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we love it, it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels. Just like this. It feels just like this.